Yo, what is up? Back again with another episode for you anti-agents. How's it going out there today? This one is particularly interesting for your ears and earbuds. Uh, when I started this podcast, I never had any idea that I would be inter- interviewing uh, people outside of my general sphere of influence, meaning like artists, entrepreneurs, uh, musicians, no one that I thought would breach the topic of higher education and research. Well, that all has changed. Today, I present a podcast with you, with you, for you, and with you, with a friend of mine, um, a recent friend of mine, uh, Michael Freschetti. He's an archaeologist and professor of anthropology at Wash U. I met Michael within the past year or two, and we've uh, slowly just become friends, just meeting at parties and uh, at Brennan's in the Central West End, and getting to talk more and more, as is want with uh, a relationship, uh, as you get to know more someone a little bit more in depth, you have a little more interesting conversations, and you get past the initial, uh, what do you do, and what do you do conversation. This is evidence of that. I'm very happy with what we talked about today. Michael, simply put, is an archaeological stud. Just kidding, but he is a a very interesting fellow, very approachable and down to earth, and none of the airs that you would typically associate with uh, teaching something at a higher level. We kind of talk about his visibility on the internet and go into this wandering tangential conversation of the tech age that we find ourselves in and how it there is no such thing as being remote anymore. We both recount our own stories of encountering technology uh, in foreign situations way off the grid. Around the 45-minute mark, we get into his uh, younger days growing up, very interested in martial arts and Asian culture, meeting his archaeology mentor, and then eventually finding his own path um, on nomadic cultures, which is very interesting. We get into kind of a deeper dive, but not too crazy deep. I mean, I think anybody can really follow along with what we're having to say here. Uh, some key questions, like what is the purpose of archaeology? And I think he has a really interesting answer to that, as well as thinking about archaeology in modern situation or the contemporary situation that it finds itself in today. Later on in the talk, we start talk, uh, discussing more about publishing and writing for a larger audience versus uh, academic audience and the upsides and downsides of that, you know, being able to paint the full picture while not being too heavily criticized amongst peers uh, is an interesting problem to have. Um, we were on a time crunch for this episode, unfortunately. It could have gone way longer than two hours. Uh, and I had so many more questions about the technology that he uses in regards to uh, his his field of work, but we'll save that for the next one. So Michael Freschetti, up next, he's a professor of anthropology at Wash U in St. Louis. He's also a National Geographic explorer, a photographer, surfer, you name it. He's he's got everything. He is he is got it in spades. Get it? Archaeology pun. Spades. All right. Okay. Okay. It's time to dig deep <laughs> into the fifteenth podcast of Anti with Michael Freshetti. I'm 
surprisingly and somewhat annoyingly, I'm one of those people who's like has a very high presence in Google. And it's only because I'm the only one of me there is, meaning that I'm the only person named Michael Freshetti that I have come across on the internet. Uh, which is That's a blessing. Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, the good news is is that I can just say, hey, Google me. But the second thing is is like that's probably the most annoying thing someone could ever say to somebody. It's like, Google me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's got a little bit of pretension behind yeah, it. Like, but, oh, um, just Google me. At least for my work, I mean, that's, you know, whatever. There's a lot of, like, a- academics have been sort of diligently putting themselves online, mm-hmm. you know, since the beginning, basically. So Yeah, comparatively, there are thousands upon thousands of Kevin Kellys in this world. Yeah, I think I know, like, at least three. So Oh, my God. <laughs> Even in St. Louis, I think there's got to be, like, three or four that I know of. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> It is the most commonplace name that there has ever been. But like I said, there's some escape factor to that too, which is nice. There is. Yeah. A lot of people are like, Hey, I saw you wrote that article in Wired. I'm like, no, actually that's the editor of Wired. Yeah. Kevin <laughs> the Amish looking dude. Yep. yep. <laughs> is there any downside of having your name immediately recognized? I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily recognized beyond within archaeology. Google rankings. But and, I mean, yeah. you know, like... No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the fact that any, if anybody's looking me up, I'm already like, wow, that's cool. Like, I don't know what. You must have a very uh, slow day. But you do a fair amount of um, talks and... Yeah. I mean, doing uh, any kind of public outreach or any kind of, you know, taking what I do and trying to give it uh, a voice beyond sort of written papers and the ac- academic bubble mm-hmm. is to me, I would say it's kind of the, it's been over the last at least five, if not more years, um, uh, a goal and, and, and a major endeavor. Um, and part of that just has to do with the fact that like, I, I think it has to do a lot with the way that, the way that sort of communication happens on the internet now, mm-hmm. you know, um, a very trivial and like somewhat meaningless thought, right. Can get uh, 25,000 views or, you know, your, your pet parrot, you know, doing a cartwheel can get a million hits and whatever else. So in a way, like the, the notion that you're influencing something mm-hmm. has been and in some degree, like completely demoted to very, very, you know, America's best home video kind of stuff. Sure. And people across the board, not just academics, but people across the board who devote enormous amounts of time to knowing things very, very, in very, very detailed fashion, can oftentimes have no more than a hundred individuals who ever care or sure. read what they do. And this isn't about me or about me wanting to have more, more people know me. It's about sort of this sort of weird distortion in the way contemporary society values information and where it comes from. And so do you, sorry, yeah. I don't mean to cut in. I, I'm just wondering if you think that that responsibility is on the people doing the research, or do you think it is on people that can synthesize it's a, bit of a lot of this information? I had a long argument, and it was an ongoing argument, let's say, with uh, the the media, um, like the former, I guess now, media uh, president or chief of, at National Geographic, and this was you know back in the early 2000s. And um, I kept trying to sell him on some ideas that I had. I was like, you know, these are gonna be really great, and the, pop- mm-hmm. the popular, you know, there'll be a great popular following for this, and whatever. 
And, you know, he was a very pragmatic guy and he knew the media industry very, very well. And he's like, nah, no, that's not going to sell. Like, you need to make that different. And I kind of took issue with this. And so we had this kind of ongoing debate where I'd be like, well, no, like it's my job to do the work as whatever I think it is. And it's your job to make it different. Um, and he kind of pushed back and we, you know, anyway, it was, a, it was a very, um, you know, fun conversation, so to speak. But in a nutshell, he was probably right. Mm-hmm. But I guess I had some, there's some truth to what I was saying as well. Sure. Like, the fact of the matter is that it's, if you're in science or in any kind of scholarship, but let's just stick with science for now because science I think is a contested realm these days. Like if you're in science and you can claim true expertise in something, and it doesn't have to even be academic, but let's just, you know, again, we're just Anything. talking about this right now. In a way, like you, if you can't communicate it to anybody, mm-hmm. then it doesn't necessarily have any impact. True. And we see this over and over and over again. And, you know, this is why people are so enraged about climate change and so enraged about all these other issues, because so many scientists are like, well, I don't know how to communicate. And then you get someone like Carl Sagan, who, you know, the master scientific yeah. communicator. And you're like, actually, people do want to hear the real deal. They do want to delve deep and they do want to know things. But they just don't want to hear a really, really boring person telling them. (laughs) And unfortunately, like, you know, myself probably included, there's a lot of folks in science who are just perfectly happy tunneled into their lab or tunneled into their work and being like, well, you know, you figure it out. Right. And what ends up happening is just like a real sort of major filter effect. So you go from, you know, and, and, you know, journalists are, I think there's a handful of journalists that I've worked with who have been really great about knowing enough about the science and knowing enough about what they're talking about to write articles that have the mass appeal, but also can stick to the real data. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's like a, a working relationship. Sure. Whereas like, I would love the idea that it's someone, like you're educating them on, on the findings and they're educating you on how, how to communicate. Interesting. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, I would love to think that through this process, there's kind of a meeting of those two worlds and mm-hmm. that eventually People, for example, can learn something from the past or they can learn something from climate science or they mm-hmm. can learn something from whatever the discipline might be, right? You know, political science, whatever. And so, you know, going back to the question, like, is it cool that I, you know, you can track the last 15 years minimum of my life kind of, you know, <laughs> month by month on Google? Well, in one way, if anyone's interested, yeah, go for it. Like it might lead you to some interesting motivations or it might show you something that you might maybe didn't know, like it would for me if Mm -hmm. I were tracking down anybody else. Um, and so I think that now that is the currency of learning in a lot of ways. I mean, even in my college classes, you know, it used to be that you would say to students like, Oh, you know, don't use the internet. It's full of junk and you can't, you know, yeah. And there's still some things you can't trust. Right. But honestly, a lot of things are pretty trustworthy now. You can kind of find really good information that's pretty a, rapidly. That's a conversation I have ongoing with a friend of mine. It's just like, you can't trust what Wikipedia has to say about, uh, you know, the historicity of African Americans. And I'm like, okay, I understand your perspective and that things are editable by uh, anyone. But it's also, what I mean, what would what document or what resource would you take to be the ultimate truth then? Right. Because a peer resourced and reviewed uh, website that can constantly update itself and constantly fact checked. You know, I would take that versus a hard bound back uh, set of books right, in my that's, library. That's frozen the minutes it's published. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's actually- just I feel like we're trying to get you know 
there is this problem of, of authenticating, authentic, <laughs> sorry, my mind and my, my mouth, you can hear I'm a little deep today. Uh, there's a problem of authenticating, you know, uh, content and right. findings and all sorts of things, but like it's ongoing, right? You know, it's not just something that people respect with the leather back to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I, I kind of, like I said, I, part of me, part of my academic, like, you know, um, conservatism, so to speak, mm. likes the idea of still being able to write down ideas, put them in a book and have them sit on a shelf for 350 years plus sure. and be like, that's going to stay that's there. That's what you like, grew up with. Right. That's like a, the, the, the monolith of your work somehow. Right. So, um, and that's cool, but I mean, take my book, for example, which is not a popular book. <laughs> it was very much, you know, written for a, a small academic audience. The data in it is maybe like still 60% true-ish <laughs> like in other words like you know what we found then you know some of it has stood the test of time sure other aspects of it have been proven and so in part by myself <laughs> um right so you know actually finding errors in my own work but the ideas were what i wanted to be kind of like entombed in that book right yeah and that's something that i think that, that there's sort of the the, the underbelly to or the flip, the flip side to rapidly re evolving, you know, wiki type stuff, mm -hmm. is that the facts might be updated, but the question is, is you know, are you getting through an idea? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's still a gold standard within writing where you're like, here's my idea, it's going to be locked in, even if so many things change around it. That's that, you know, you're in a way almost entombing it between in the in the in the cover of that book for sure. Whereas like your idea could get easily slowly diluted and washed out so that step by like, you know, wiki iteration 1000, <laughs> whatever you put into that initial, you know, knowledge was, you're not even associated. Exactly. With it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, and this happens even in articles, like, you know, the level at which the original citation then gets reduced and redacted to the point where the current citation is five citations or 10 citations or 20 citations away from the original work is very common. Yeah. I mean, if you actually want to back or fact check anything nowadays, any, any, even stupid stuff, I find myself having to spend a good 10 minutes yeah. just to like, okay, this is something that's been said. Yeah. I'm going to look into that. All right. What are the, what are the references for this material? Right. And it may be like something as stupid as like, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, it does the tires on a Humvee, yeah. you know, I, I don't, <laughs> yeah. just any kind of random ass question that a person might have. But I mean, that's the cool thing in a way too, right? Because I mean, imagine that not being possible. Like, I mean, right. I, you remember, I'm sure oh, I, of course I, I, I hundred percent remember. You just had to use your imagination. Yeah, like, you're like, <laughs> I don't know. And there was like some random set of really limited books and you know, whatever library, you know, like the, a simple the, question took a whole day totally. to research or you, or here, but here's the cool thing about that, which maybe is sort of another branch of topic it also meant talking to people who had expertise. Right. And I think that that's really, in a way, that's another side to wanting to be like talking, right? Yeah. Is because like, who do you ask? You know, right. I mean. Which is becoming a lost art. Right. I mean, so, I'm you sure know, you know with college students. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> I mean, the, the, my grandfather, like I would talk to people about like, or, you know, simple things that are even just mechanical things or whatever, you know, now you can go on YouTube and watch yeah. someone tear apart your, you know, your furnace and whatever. But like, 
before that was possible, you had to talk to somebody, you had to talk to the old man down the street, or you go yeah. to the hardware store, or yes. whoever it was. And those individuals were sort of, you know, fountains of information. And again, I'm not trying to be like, you know, a Luddite and be like, oh, well, you know, the internet's You're just bad saying that there, there's saying that, benefits to both things that have yeah. happened and saying like the interaction with other humans and the, the transfer of knowledge through conversation was a great resource that we don't really rely on so much anymore. Right. We're and, interacting and, with our screens in order to, you know, do a minor fix in our car yeah. that otherwise might have taken a day. And now I think it takes that, 15 minutes. This is maybe one of the biggest, you know, again, if I were to be nostalgic or something like this is one of the biggest changes in the last decade, two, three, you know, decade or two, I would say, where I liked that neighborhood feel where like I knew, you know, yeah. the people who did certain things in my neighborhood when I grew up and mm -hmm. I knew you know, when I lived in different places, like I liked that aspect of society. And now I feel like, and this is sort of what everybody says, but you know, it's like, Oh, no one knows their neighbors. You know, you can't trust your kids to go next door. You know, like all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, man, that does suck a little bit. Like I'd like there to be some more organic, some more you granularity know, to our society. Man, I was just thinking the other day, just in terms of conversations in general and how I got started talking to people. And it started with my neighbor. My neighbor was a middle-aged man with two sons and he was a recovered alcoholic and his two sons were active alcoholics. And, wow. you know, my parents explained it to me, but I went over there all the time, hung out with them all the time yeah. while they were drinking, but they were always very cool. You know, mm -hmm. like nothing weird ever happened, but my parents had enough trust to be like, yeah, you can go over there. They're our neighbors. Right. Nowadays it's like, would you let your 10-year-old kid go into a home that has two uh, active alcoholics in it? Yeah, well, I mean, you probably end up, you know. <laughs> like, I saw a guy in the middle of the day just laying on a bed with beer cans by him. And my his dad was like, there's Bob. You know, and, like, it was just whatever. And then we started talking about uh, the blueprints that he was drawing, you know, yeah. and, like, what he does for a living. Right. And so it's just... There isn't, like, there's a sheltering away from wanting to see those or be in those kind of situations. Yeah. You know, and, like, everybody's got a GPS tracker now. Right. I'd go on bike rides that lasted hours. My parents wouldn't hear from me. No. Until I, I came back. We were, I mean, I wouldn't say, we weren't kicked out in, a, in an aggressive way. But we were encouraged <laughs> to be outdoors, kind of, rain, you know, summer, winter, fall, or spring, like, pretty much by mid-morning on the weekends. And it was like, yeah, we'll see you around dinner time. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, get out. Now, granted, we had a little bit of land around our house, and so I could kind of you know, roam around and get in trouble, but not really get into any real trouble. Right. But, you know, it was easy enough to find yourself, you know, doing mischief, mischievous things sure. and or just doing fun things that were not under the watchful eye of anybody. No, and like getting hurt and not running home. Yeah. Like figuring out how to deal with pain <laughs> and a cut or, yeah. you know, like, you know, lighting stuff on fire. Or, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of stories relating right. to that. <laughs> you know, I have this theory that it's just... um in the past hundred years, like everybody's striving for a better youth for their children, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, the, 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 the intention is obviously pure and like you want your kid to be innocent as long as possible. You want them to have uh, all the benefits of living in a Western <laughs> civilized, you know, country and youth and not having to worry about working or death or yeah. murder or rape or any of these kind of things. And so that kind of has extended down throughout the generations. So it makes sense. It's like we want our kids to be kids for as long as possible. But the downside of that is that it has really, like, 
I'm in my later 30s now, and I still feel like a kid, kind of, in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I don't know. I have, I'm also pre-internet era as well. Right. But I think that, like, my parents' youth is way easier than their parents' youth, and so on and so forth. Definitely. And so then, you know, how do you, when do you start getting to a point where it's like, Right, we have to start making our kids uh, have a have a more difficult youth now. Yeah, like that's, that's the thing that now. we have to do now. That's now because I mean, they're I, just going to become coddled. They can't, you know. I agree. I mean, I think that you know. I mean, it's funny. And it, it does sound like old codger talk, but but more and more we're showing that failure is a necessary aspect of being successful in life, or, or just struggle. Yes, I mean, and you know, again, that you know. As you know, I'm, I just had uh, kids, right? So right. I think about this a lot now. Yeah. Now, granted, my, my little girls are twin girls. They're like four, five months old. So, you know, right yeah. now they have, you know, as, as they used to refer to, you know, my mom used to say, you know, they have their black fur, right? They're, they're right. untouchable. Like, yeah. you know, they're just yeah. sort of little, little puppies. Kid. They can kind of do whatever. <laughs> um, eventually, you know, they'll, they'll be, have to answer to something, I assume. But nevertheless, I mean, my wife and I, we talk about, you know, Heather, we talk about, uh, how, you know, how will we make our kids or pr provide the environment for our kids to be not just productive and not just successful? I mean, those are kind of loaded terms, but more like just cool kids. Like how yeah. will they be resourceful and how will <laughs> they be strong and how will they be, you know, self-confident and like, what are the little building blocks? And it's scary as a parent, especially as a new parent, but you know, you then look through your generational history mm -hmm. and you say, okay, what are the things that were good about that generational history? What yeah. were the things I want to avoid? Right. But what were the things that were good? And how can I create that in a world where you can Google everything? Where yes. And you can talk to them every single minute of the day. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> where my four-month-old is already like, I was sitting at the, at the bar, at my breakfast bar, I had my laptop open and I was like with one hand holding her and kind of snuggling her and the other hand I was like scrolling through a couple of things and her, like, it was bizarre. She, like, reached for the mouse pad. And oh was like, like, and I was like, no, like, don't touch it. You know, I just wanted to, like, shelter her from the the, the draw of yeah. this glowing box, you know? Yeah, I, re I distinctly remember when one of my uh, good friends, like, 10 years ago, he had one of his first children. And it was eerie how easily the kid used the iPad. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, a year old. Yeah. Just like, boop, yep. Visually yeah. interacting with it. Yeah, I know what this does. Yeah. Yep, this entertains me. Nope, those are dad apps. Right. And, and on like, the other hand, if you don't do it, if you don't do it, right, <laughs> if you don't somehow or somewhere along the way, like, okay, if they don't get, you know, I, I talk to eight-year-olds who can, like, program in Python. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I was definitely not programming. I could barely, like, you right. know, make a fort, you know, but, like. But their programming in Python is you're taking apart a radio and right, rebuilding it. Right, right, Have you seen um, Captain Fantastic with um, uh, Viggo Mortensen? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's, like. One of the coolest movies, and I call it like Fight Club Family. Right. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. And it is such a good study on that balance. Right. Of saying, taking your kids out of society, teaching them literature, how to read, yeah. but then, you know, making sure that they have social awareness and right. how to interact with people and what technology is. Totally. And, you know, I think that right now, I mean, you know, people talk about the Anthropocene and like, you know, the, the massive thing about the environment. And yeah, I, mm -hmm. I have no doubt that, you know, at a, at a global sort of, you know, level, that is a true thing. But I mean, really, we're in a tech, our, our, for our experiential level, the biggest 
and most important thing has been this like meteoric rise in technology sure. with all of its costs and you know leaving setting the environment aside for a minute just looking at sort of how it how it changes us socially i mean yeah. i'm an anthropologist right so like right. when i think about what has changed in terms of like in 10 years yeah in 10 years i mean i, I was literally on the tibetan plateau uh, about a year ago mm-hmm. and was with a bunch of archaeologists and we were driving around the outer edges this was on the Chinese side of the border, like the non-autonomous Tibetan territory. Mm -hmm. And we were driving through some of these highland areas and we were at like 4,000 meters, which is whatever that is, like, you know, 12,000, 13,000 feet. And, uh, we pull over at this like little roadside kind of lunch spot, Mm -hmm. which is like a couple of yurts and some tents and some like, you know, Tibetan folks there cooking up like lamb or yak or whatever. I think we actually ate yak. And, uh, when I looked out the window of this like beautiful little sort of, you know, Tibetan truck stop, so to speak, high in the mountains, there was like maybe five or six teenagers, all who were dressed like anybody else you'd ever see, like, you yeah. know, like skinny jeans and like whatever, like some kind of hockey jersey or something. I don't even know. Sure. You know, we're living around, we're like 50,000 miles away from the ocean and nevertheless, like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're wearing something yeah, they're hipsters. <laughs> and they've got their phones up and they're catching signal. <laughs> They're catching signal up there. Oh my and God. And there, I was like, holy crap. Like there's no, there's more no, remote. there's no more remote. There's no more exotic. And again, I don't care. I'm not suggesting that there should be. I'm just right. saying that like, there is no such thing anymore. You know, this, this romantic notion of like finding these pocketed people who don't have access. Nope. No, man. I, <laughs> my first moment like that, um, uh, was in, I was in Cambodia. It was my first gig as a, uh, photographer or as a, a photojournalist. And we went to uh, the city dump in the middle of the night to photograph rag pickers. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay? And they're just kids, you know, that sleep all day, wake up at night when there's less activity in the dump, and they pick and they literally find rags and knot them together, and then somehow they sell that as like a recyclable commodity. Hmm. So, just crazy. Yeah. And there's earth movers, there's fires. It felt like fucking... Terminator, you know, (laughs) like very post-apocalyptic and, uh, they're just having the time of their lives and they're taking out their cell phones and like, they don't, they don't have money, but they can somehow they can get access to mobile telephones. Well, it's so cheap. This was 12 years ago. So it was not smartphones, but like, you know, it was like kind of that bridge between flip phones and smartphones. So they had like color screens and everything and they're like playing with each other and I'm like like limited games, things you could toss back. Right. And then you're like, I'm in the, I'm in a city dump. Yeah. Like during the day there's naked babies running around and these kids are just playing with their cell phones and picking rags. Like it's the best time of their life. Totally. And like, you know, (laughs) from a global perspective, I think that, you know, we don't in here in America, at least, I mean, I think it's really hard for people in America to, first of all, step outside of our own like window. Sure. And both in terms of like being able to say, okay, what are we doing right or wrong? I don't mean ethically or morally. I mean, just like literally like what's successful and what's not successful. And then comparing that to the realm of experiences Mm -hmm. that are happening simultaneously around the world, like whether it's, you know, kids disassembling or getting rags or disassembling old technology in India. I'm sure you've seen some of that stuff too. Yep. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, and it's all driven by being able to Google me. Like, you know, yeah. like, like that, like front end is, oh, like this technology and that it's so convenient that we can look something up and there's this like ability to Google and the ability but people to people don't. 
And you know what's weird is like if you look back into the you know the the burgeoning of the media age in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, people were influenced by the television. But now you choose your influence. Yeah. And what I find ironic is that people aren't really getting smarter by and large, at least in America. Like because they're just choosing pleasure over pushing themselves to understand the narratives of anybody else existing in the world. Right. And part of that is, you know, and, and it's, the irony of that is that we're at a time when access to that, to the, the reality of that yeah. is greater than ever. Yeah. You know, I mean, most people like the idea of me even getting on a plane and people just choose porn, yeah. whether it's, whether it's porn or right. whether it's, you know, puppy porn. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever, whatever like mindless uh, yeah. thing. And, and, you know, the idea that I could get on a plane, like now, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I get to, I fortunate and somewhat guilty. I get to travel a lot, mm-hmm. um, which is good because I get to see a lot of the world still, and I'm still fascinated by doing that. Um, the guilty side, of course, is that like any argument I may possibly have as an environmentalist is shot because I put like a hundred thousand miles on planes. So like, <laughs> count me in the bad column because Whoa, I mean, whatever. There's just there's just no escaping that no. right just yet. Yeah, but. I, I kind of feel like if I'm going to bring back a message, at least maybe the collective message can outweigh the guilt of me flying to some of these places. Anyway, sure, leaving yeah. the guilt aside, you know, the, they're going to fly even with their right. Dying, they're going to so. fly. But the point is, is that you know, <laughs> as a kid or even up until you know, I hadn't left the country or I've really been on a plane until mm. I was about 18 years old. Like it just wasn't a thing that was you know we didn't have access to that yeah. you know, in my sort of you know upbringing, and so the idea that you know you can be in Cambodia mm-hmm. without being in the military was like, <laughs> what? Like, yeah. you know, how, how do you go to those places? How do you do it? And nowadays, like, you know, my, my nephew who's 18 years old is taking a gap year and he's just going to travel around the world. Um, That's awesome. Just going to, he's like, yeah, I'm going to take like nine months and just do this whole trip. And he's been, you know, he's done some trips with the Boy Scouts. He's got some experience, but sure. for him, it's undaunting to like go online, like, oh, I can just arrive in, you know, pen on pen and like oh, book, a, and book a, a hostel. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> like I can remember like the first time I ever arrived outside the country and like tried to get a hotel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, outside of, even outside of Europe, like my friend and I, who's now an archeologist in Singapore, we basically um, used some of our grant money to take a trip to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so we were in Europe at the time and we took like third class trains and like cobbled together extra money to get this ticket to arrive in Cairo. And all we had was like a little like, you know, Lonely Planet book. And so we just picked the cheapest one. It was like $2 a night. And we're like, great, that's perfect. That'll save us money. So we stayed at this like rat hotel. And literally there were like bed bugs and like parasites. You know, it was terrible. Yeah. We like woke up in the morning. We're like, what is wrong? Like we're all itchy and rashy and like terrible. <laughs> and, you know, that was 1996, right? Yeah. Imagine what it would look like today. Like now you'd have like reviews oh. and ratings and like, you know, the, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, <laughs> do you have access to the world? And, you know, uh, do you have photographs of the bed I'm going to sleep in specifically? And, you know, do you have what kind of, how many different types of pillows do you have? Yeah, but do you, you don't have? remember it. No, like right. you remember the chaos <laughs> of sleeping in bed bugs and right. waking up with rashes and like, eh, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Like, is this how the rest of the world lives? Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, and it wasn't even that the rest of the world did, just that we made bad choices. Right, like, right, know, right, like, there's right. plenty of nice places in Cairo. We just simply weren't <laughs> able to find them at, right. at age 18, you know, whatever. And I think that like, 
again, you know, going back to that question of like, you know, are, are, are our kids or our next generation or even millennials today, like, are they, where, where are they, what's their balancing point between sort of authenticity? Where does the struggle come in? Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't mean to like indemnify millennials. I know they get a lot of shit from a oh, lot of I, people. I, me neither. But I do actually, because I teach a lot of millennials and mm-hmm. I guess now What's it like? The newest generation is Gen Z now. I don't know what the most like. Well, no, nah, I, I the uh, oh yeah, yeah, Gen Z. I was thinking. I think cool. millennials are over. Like I think that like they're already out of college. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, Gen Zs are now because I'm on the cusp of it, and I'm 37. You're right. Um, I prefer Gen Y. I thought that was a badass generation name <laughs> for obvious, you know, yeah. implicit reason. Like why, why? why? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I believe millennialism is already over. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so whatever, whoever, There's no it term is, yet. Yeah. Whoever, whoever <laughs> it is that's, you know, 20 something now, 20, you know, I don't, I actually find a lot of the kids I teach at least to be really, uh, resourceful and cool. And, you know, I actually enjoy talking to a lot of them. So it's not that I have like a real, like, you know, I do think it comes in waves. Yeah. Like I do, like I, I remember hanging out with a group of kids that were about six or seven years younger than me. Very astute entrepreneurs, artists right. have all gone on to great things or stayed and done amazing things. But then like two year, a year after them, like nobody. Right. And then like maybe four years down the road, like, you know, it's kind of like that collective of, um, you know, I'm just thinking of like Malcolm Gladwell now and like right. how uh, the, there's like these weird times of, of success that bubble up right because of people being in the right place at the right time yeah and there's sort of a contagious effect to that too. yes like exactly. if you're around people who are doing things then you some you know again and that, that maybe, maybe that's one of the positive things about the visibility of the internet and the sure. visibility of like you know i mean I, i'm generally pretty depressed right now about say like instagram for example yeah like instagram to me i used to like it a lot like i liked it maybe too much. And it was largely because I got to follow cool photographers and like, <laughs> I didn't have to read a lot of bullshit. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of like commentary. I didn't feel obliged to like chime in or have an opinion. I just was like, Oh, that's a cool image. Or, you know, that individual has an interesting thing or, you know, whatever, like from the most basic to the most sort of, you know, artistic. Um, but then the influencer thing started mm-hmm. and then I started to sort of find, maybe this is the anthropologist in me. I started to, defi- started to find the, the categories, the patterns. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, there's like the fitness icon yeah. pa- category, right? Where, you know, for male and female, right? So you have like the people who have like, they preach to you this like healthy life and you can mm-hmm. read how to, you know, how to make an avocado sandwich and you know, everything else. And they, they need to seem really perfect. And they, honestly, I'm jealous of them because I don't know, I can't keep my abs chiseled. So I don't know how <laughs> they do it, but they're apparently thousands of people who are like, ab and then gods. the sun kissed travelers who yeah. have like, they're beautiful people yes, that exactly. just like have the, the perfect sepia ish mm-hmm. photo filters and they're, you know, they're constantly have their GoPro yep. aimed at them, but it looks badass because they're standing on the top of Machu Picchu. Exactly. Or something. Every time they're in some amazing <laughs> spot. And you're like, so do you just have like a permanent full-time photographer? And you always find the formula. It's like, sadly or not sadly, it's like usually a beautiful woman yeah. who's got some like yeah. photography artist Looking guy. backwards. Yeah. And so it's either, either they're on their own or they're with a friend or there's somebody who's like behind them taking their photographs and it's perfect. And like, so this whole thing has become very like posed to me and I'm like, ugh. Yeah. Yet it is hard to turn turn away in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I, I I remember like when like three years ago, well, right at the beginning of the elections, where I just had this overwhelming sense of saturation of controversy and outrage, which has basically just become you know the normal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, 
I want to see photos of your life again. Yeah. Like show me like food photos are cool again. I used yeah. to fucking hate food <laughs> photos. Now like I would be really interested to see your food photos. Right, right, right. Yeah, now it's become a bit too uh cleaned up and 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 um well, and even my own it. even my own page. I mean my own Instagram sort of journey so to speak was sort mm-hmm. of weird like I didn't do Instagram. I did Facebook-ish. I kind of dropped out really early. Mm-hmm. I just got Anyway, it wasn't good for me, but, um, Instagram all of a sudden I was like, oh, cool. I've got, you know, decades of archival photographs on film, on on slide film from really cool times and cool places. Like, you know, just some key moments, both historical moments, but just key moments in my own life. And, uh, so I started the process of getting them scanned and digitized. Mm -hmm. And then I would select and put some story and I'll tell little vignette stories about each one. Um, and it slowly merged in a direction that actually I don't even really like that much anymore. <laughs> the direction is um, basically it became kind of like a preachy page where like I would oh. be like, you know, here's this cool thing and, you know, you should know more about this and these are the reasons why. Yeah. And it was less about like, here's this cool thing and here's my experience with it and why I liked it. Yeah. And it was more like you should be paying attention to the fact that, you know, while the Maldives are beautiful, they're also <laughs> falling into the ocean. So you better fucking pay attention. Right. And like, you know, like it became this kind of academic, like preach facts, yeah. you know, space. And I was falling into the trap of a lot of other storytellers who are trying to be impactful. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course it failed because I never played, it failed in the sense that I don't have the tens of thousands of followers and because I never played the game of like getting followers. I just right. was like, whoever knows me maybe. So like the fact that I have 500 followers is a shock to me <laughs> because I don't know who the hell, I mean, 200 of them are people who I know and the other 300, I have no idea what you're thinking. Yeah. Because, you know, but you know, great for, you know, thank you. But like, you know, whatever. So I didn't, I was never very successful in that mode, but nevertheless, I also became rapidly bored with my own, mode. You sure. Know? I was like, ugh, I'm one of the, I'm another one of this. Like you feel icons. like you have to post something right. like, all right, um, what, am so, I, what deep thought am I going to say about this photo of me in uh, China? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I've kind of, a, a lot of that's just kind of gone away and I've, I've not posted as much recently. And it's not about right or wrong. It's just saying like, I am bored with my, my own message. And yeah. partly that's, I guess that's in one scope you could say, at one level you could say, you know, that's the death of a communicator is when you're bored with your own message. But more importantly, I think I'm reorienting what I want my message to be yeah. and what I want, how I want to communicate it. Mm-hmm. And maybe Instagram isn't the best way to communicate shit anymore. Right. Like, it, it might be still a great way to share photos of your dog or it might sure. be a certain great ways to show, you know, show your most or to recent. promote something after you've spent the time and energy to develop right. it. Right. Exactly. But like this kind of ad hoc, like, Oh, today I'm going to delve into my, you know, it started as kind of a journey through my archive, which I yeah. loved because yeah, I hadn't yeah. been into those photos for, for decades, but then it became kind of like, Oh, like I need to one up myself. I need to get another bad, awesome photo. Or, you know, is this photo Instagram worthy, Yeah, you know, and these kinds of things. And like, um, and this was very much influenced by a lot of the people who I follow who are mostly National Geographic type, you know, mm-hmm. photographers or ethnographic photographers or journalistic photographers who, you know, again, they're essentially playing that game to a much greater success, right? Sure, sure. And that leads one to, and, and that's fine, and I'm not begrudging them. I'm just saying that, like, when, when you, my classic story of this, which I finally realized, okay, you need to change your tone or change your thing, 
was I went on a, the same trip that I was in Northern Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, we, they, the, our hosts in China took us to a national park in China. Um, I'm going to butch, butcher the name. It's like Jogo Dian or something like that. Anyway, it's, it's a, a very famous uh, nature park mm-hmm. kind of on the edge of the um, Tibetan plateau. Beautiful, beautiful. It's basically the source for the Yangtze River and the Yellow River. Wow. Just an incredible amount of water and like lakes and it's just it's just an incredible place. It's very Chinese touristed in its kind of setup. So mm-hmm. there's big buses and there's tons of people, but it's very nicely done and you don't ever feel like you're, you know, it's not like Disneyland where you're just inundated with lines and trucks. Right. And um, so you do get a sense of actually being able to experience the nature. Um, and I took a photograph of this one beautiful lake. I spent a lot of time taking photographs on this one particular lake because it was just this gorgeous lake with all these trees that had fallen into the water and were kind of like anaerobically preserved, hmm. like under the surface. So you had this like underwater forest, so to speak, um, laying down on its side. And then you wow. had like the Himalayas in the back. So it was just gorgeous, just a beautiful, beautiful place. And so I spent a fair amount of time like you know, walking all the way around the lake, taking great every angle I could possibly imagine. And I got a couple of, I think, really stellar photographs. So I post my like best one and it was like beautiful and multicolored and blah, blah, blah. And I got, you know, my classic like 92 likes and I was like, oh yes, like this one. I hit my, my 25%, whatever. And went on with my day. And uh, maybe like two months later, Uh a National Geographic photographer uh, by the name of Michael Yamashita, Mm -hmm. uh, who does a lot of stuff in Asia and, you know, just, you know, whatever, world-class photographer posts a photo of the same exact lake, pretty much from the same exact viewing platform. Mm-hmm. It was a slightly different season. He had, it had gone into fall, so the snow, there was a bit more snow on the mountains, et cetera, et cetera. But for all intents and purposes, it was technically the same exact photograph. And not only did it get like half a million likes, mm-hmm. but it like won like one of the National Geographic photos of the year kind of thing. That's amazing. And I like <laughs> sat back and I was like, fuck man. Like it isn't about the photography at all. No, like no, it's no. about like, what is your access? Yeah. And I'm not taking anything away from Michael Yamashita, like more power to him. Sure. But the fact of the matter is, is that like, this is not a platform for, a, you know, it's not a platform for any kind of like true communication. It's a pl- platform for, Attention. Attention. And that attention is actually very pinholed, yeah. right? So there's an incredible sort of obscure world of things happening. Mm-hmm. And if you have enough popularity already or mm-hmm. a reason, then the pinhole focuses on you. Yeah. And occasionally you'll get some random breakout person, right? Who like pokes their own pinhole out and like, ah, and then all of a sudden they become incredibly popular. And that's very cool and very amazing. But 95% of the time, it's not that. And in a way becomes this like social malady where here I am, like, I truly love photography. And like, I was discouraged as hell. I was like, oh man, like, how is my photograph not like somehow being given the reward? You know, and you get this really like sickening kind of like personal. My question would be how much of that is just uh, social regulation of the tool of Instagram and mobile photography? Like, because... I'm thinking while you're saying this, like in some ways it's always been that way. Sure. You know, yeah, this is nothing new prior to Instagram. You know, there's only a very few who bubble up Yeah, through and we have this pinhole focus on them. Yeah. Like we know a lot. We it's know the aspiration though. That's yes. Different. Yeah. So the idea that somehow, right, like my oh, photograph, like it's, it's actually very insidious mm-hmm. and it cuts at you. It can cut at you if you're not like, if you don't really like 
re, recalibrate yourself to be like, wait a minute, like, yeah. why are you posting? Why, why am I here in the first place? Was I there to get half a million likes about my photograph? And they're right. like, no, in the first end, <laughs> I just loved the photograph and I wanted people to see it. Yeah. And that was great. And yeah, is there some motivation behind it? Sure. Is there like a degree of like, you know, selfishness or whatever. Yeah. Everything you do, you don't do it because, you know, this whole notion that we do everything just for purely sort of, you know, selfless reasons is, is probably unlikely, but the platform, because the potential is there, right? Like, wow, like this could be my, maybe they're going to be like, this is the best thing. And and the irony is, is that like, I'm all, I'm probably, uh, you know, I say this as an example of how it doesn't function. I mean, I'm actually part of Nat Geo. Like, I mean, like right. I'm, I'm actually in their system already. Right. So it's not like, you know, they don't have access to it. It doesn't matter. And they're not a bad group for not, you know, promoting my photo. There's thousands and thousands of people who are po- posting amazing photographs sure. who are going to get their 92 likes and move on with their day. And like, <laughs> that's cool. Like, but if, as long as you understand that that's where the platform is. Right. Yeah. And so then, okay, going back to the question of communicating and, you know, all the other things, like, what are the ways in which then, if, so if, if Michael Yamashita, and I'm sorry, Mike, I'm picking on you, but like, you know, if he's going to be the guy who's going to communicate that aspect of that part of the world, mm-hmm. I mean, he's got that, he's doing it. Yeah. So maybe it's like, this would be the equivalent of me being like, but I also designed a search engine. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's always, sorry, bro. Like yeah. your search engine probably isn't going to make the cut anymore. But it's just to say that, you know, maybe there is an avenue for which my voice is the right voice. Yeah. And it is the thing that I do have to say, and that that is uniquely my voice. And that's harder to find for everybody. That's hard to find whether you're an artist, whether you're an academic, it's harder to find whether you're an activist, a politician, whatever that case may be. And this comes back then to the, you know, this sort of minor criticism about experience, because like when you find that authenticity, mm-hmm. people get it. And yeah. they hear it and they're like, wow, like that's fucking authentic shit. Like that's, I never heard that before. Right. Or that's something that you can only, only you can say that. Right. And I feel like that's where maybe some of these social media platforms have failed us yeah. is that they've been funneling us towards greater and greater aggregations of what ideas and thoughts and things should look like. Even if it's critical, yeah. it's like, you're still part of this like onslaught. Whereas maybe just stepping away from it and digging in, you know, a lot of it's what you're doing, right? Like, I mean, this is what this is. This right. is a, an opportunity to say, let's block out a little bit of the noise mm-hmm. and let the thing that I have to say come out. Correct. Yeah. And I think you can even see that uh, the platform of Instagram does breed a homogeny of sorts. Totally. And so it's like, it's like people wanting to take a photo like Michael Yamashita. Yes. yes. And so then all of these photos start to appear and like, it really starts to like at the point that we're at now, it really kind of quells individualism totally, and weirdness, you know, totally. like anytime you see something weird, you're like, ugh, like that's not even framed correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, why were they even taking a photograph of that? And it all comes back to the idea of like, I, I've, I've talked about this every so often, but like you have to, uh, there's this quote by this designer, the things that made you weird as a kid are what make you awesome as an adult. Right. And it's, you really have to cling on to that. Right. Like you have to shy away from wanting likes and wanting uh, attention and like almost, almost think of it negatively. Right. Like try and get the opposite going and then revert back to like, well, what were the things that I did dig as a kid that nobody else that I got bullied for? Right. 
you know, or that everybody else made fun of. Right. Because then you dive headlong into those things and it doesn't matter. But if it's interesting enough down the road, it's going to get the attention and, and the awareness that it deserves if it's, if it's worth it. Right. You know? I mean, I feel like this has been, you know, I mean, this has been sort of a, a certain aspect of my career has reflects that weird uh, idiosyncrasy in my interests. I think that's everybody. Yeah. I mean, I the mean, past like, 25 years, everybody has been affected by this, yeah. whether they want to admit it or not. Totally. I mean, I can guarantee you that, I mean, I'm at, almost to a point now where like, I mean, I, I see this as a... Um, an approach to almost life in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like when things start to get crowded, I get I get a little claustrophobic and get yeah. a little like uh, maybe I don't even know what the other phobics that phobias there are, but like you know I just get f- like weird about having too many other in- other people focusing on the things that I'm doing. Yes, and so I would rather hand it off and be like, all right, like now there's a cool. I'm going this moment, way. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole momentum <laughs> behind this that looks great. I'm really happy. I'll support everybody who's doing that. And I'm going to make sure that it continues and do my best to make sure that everybody else succeeds. Now, thank you know, that, but yeah. I'm going to now jump off this entirely different direction, that's which it. may be a total failure. That's and that Mark Twain quote that I actually think is a Mark Twain quote. Um, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, question yourself. Right. And it's like, okay, so there was a time when, you know, what I wanted to study was like, no, there was nobody else around. Like I was literally yeah. like in an echo chamber. Yeah. So how, I want to know that, like, what was your initial interest to even get into these fields? So, I mean, my interest in archaeology in the, in the was not sort of the... the 90s, yeah, the I mean, 80s I, mean, and I, 90s. I was a very disaffected kind of grunge punk mm-hmm. kid in the 90s, right? And like t- my actual goal in life, if you really... And I remember this conversation because it's been reiterated to me numerous times by my f- first and most influential professor. My goal at like 19 was... I was big into martial arts at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd been like studying martial arts as kind of a way of handling my teenage years and my neighborhood and everything else. And um, where was this? This is in upstate New York in Syracuse. Okay. Uh, pretty like rough neighborhood kind of, you know, working class neighborhood. And I had a great instructor and he really uh, turned martial arts into a philosophy, not just, I mean, it, it was also very physical. I mean, like day one. Was it like a bullying thing or was it like? I wasn't being bullied. You were kind I, of just like I, attached I, to the idea of. I had a bizarre and long-term interest in Asia. Like mm. just like, because I think it was just exotic to me in the mm. worst of all like sort of ways. Like I was just like a teenager who was like, wow, like Japan is cool and samurais are cool. Sure. And do you remember like the first um, book or movie you saw that was like, oh shit, um, <laughs> I'm into this. <laughs> I remember watching the seven samurai and being okay. like, well, I had, I had it on VHS. Wow. And like, that was super cool because it was such a like, it's classic. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it was way more intellectually advanced for me at that age. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember how, I think I got it out of the library because I like searched samurai mm. or I went to like the card catalog and got like samurai. And that was like, but the library had this like old VHS video. Um, and it was such a, badass movie it's like four hours or something and it's just an amazing movie but like all of it kind of i mean honestly like even more more sort of seemingly ridiculous things like even like karate kid i was like wow like karate kid was badass like i mean mr miyagi i still to this day have every intention and hopefully you'll get to come over and and chill out in it when it's done of like building the backyard mr miyagi garden like it's such a fucking cool like idea of like an old man back there sanding his deck like (laughs) i don't know it's all very like you know childhood nostalgia again it's like um 
we didn't really even choose the influence of Karate right. Kid. No. It was just everybody was influenced yeah, by it. Yeah, it was awesome. And it was like, whoa, like that's cool. Like and, and the headband. Yeah. And then that was coupled, <laughs> you know, I was just at the right age. And I was also coupled with being in a rough neighborhood. Um it wasn't even like I was, you know, I wasn't bullied. I was a pretty like sporty kid. And so I was kind of like fine. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't get picked on. But there was a lot of like just normal adolescent street fight type stuff, you know? Um, I was in the skateboarding crowd. I tried the skateboarding crowd. I tried the BMX, uh, Mm -hmm. freestyle crowd. I tried all these kind of different crowds (laughs) and I didn't find that intellectualism behind it. I liked that the athleticism and the sport side of that, but I wasn't like, um, turned on by the philosophies of it. And I guess I was, there was enough of that interest in my mind at that time that I was like, Oh, martial arts is cool because there's a philosophy. Yeah. And my instructor did a great job of balancing that without making it be like, you know, um, overly spiritual, overly spiritual or like overly preachy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was an inner city social worker, um, African American, who ran this pretty like hard knocks martial arts sh- studio, like in a like shopping plaza. And when I walked in, it was like classic. It was almost like straight out of like these out of like these out of a movie, like. There's like three or four um, like older gentlemen, like in their 30s, 40s, right? <laughs> older, <laughs> older guys. <laughs> and they were like pummeling each other, you know, in the sparring section. And then there was a handful of like younger kids. And I was like, okay, this looks like the pace I could handle. Like this is like realistic enough. You know, they weren't like, it wasn't all just like, you know, performative. And it also wasn't, you know, Cobra Kai, right? So right. it was like somewhere in between. Um, and I went there with a buddy of mine and we just kind of decided to stay. And this instru- instructor was really great. So all of this is to say that like at 18, I had defended my like first black belt. I was like, wow, like this is great. Wow. And I was d- dedicated to the idea of, going to Japan to study with like some grandmaster. Like that was like my goal in life. That's awesome. Now my parents of course were like, no, you're (laughs) going to go to college. (laughs) So whatever that means, you can go to college. And so, um, I went to college for engineering because you could get a job and spun the, uh, yeah. My brother had gone for engineering (laughs) and was your dad an engineer? No. Uh, but you know, engineering was sort of like a good career path, like very high, percentage of getting a job, sure. you know, like these kinds of things, right? Very kind of like uh, middle-class uh, mentality of like, go to college so as you can become trained to, to get out of the house and get a job. Like yeah. Those are kind of no, I rem- in the nineties, yeah. it was like, oh, you got to do management information systems. Yeah, exactly. like, that's the, <laughs> exactly. that's the big one. That's right. how you get money. Right. Right. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I didn't make it through, but through, uh, oh, so around my sophomore year in college, a variety of like bizarre events occurred. Like I got the gym I was working in closed because of renovations and I lost my job and the, mm-hmm. yeah. And I ended up going to a, a work study like panel and the panel had like all the job listings and it was like mid semester. So all the job, all the good, like easy jobs were taken. Mm-hmm. So all that was left was like real jobs where you had like, you know, like attach antlers to, 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 you know, bugs or doing some kind of weird set of like lab technician crap where you're like cleaning cages and doing other things. And there's this one little advertisement for, um, a geographic information systems lab mm. and an archeologist. And I remembered distinctively where like the, his office location, there was this amazing Northwest coast, uh, totem pole in the office. Like it just happened to be part of like kind of a small museum exhibit. And I was like, oh, the totem pole room. Like, that's kind of a cool place to work. And um, I, t- I went to talk to the professor. 
um, not really knowing. I mean, everyone's like, oh, did you ever always want to be an archaeologist? And I was like, honestly, I didn't know what a fucking archaeologist really did. It it wasn't like a thing in my upbringing. It wasn't like, oh, yes, I follow these, you know, who becomes a professor? I don't know. (laughs) And so um, I talked to this guy. I knock on his door and he's sitting in his office. He's got a banjo and he's got these little like blue um, sunglasses on, little circular blue sunglasses. And he's sitting at his desk with his feet up on his monitor and he's like strumming on the banjo. And I knock on the desk and I, on the door. I'm like, uh, Professor Zubro. And he's like, hold on. I'm learning how to play Coltrane on the banjo. <laughs> and I was like, all right, this is going to be great. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to love this guy. So he was just Coltrane this like, on the banjo. he was just this like, eccentric, awesome, amazingly kind of like diversified academic who also understood that culturing on the banjo would, would be, be a pretty badass, badass thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he gave me basically the opportunity and like within a, the span of a year, I was like, okay, fuck engineering. Mm-hmm. I'm going over to um, archaeology. Sure. And that was... I had no background in, you know, little background in the humanities or, or in the social sciences. Like was everything it the I way had. that he presented it to you? Or? No, it was as much about his lifestyle as anything else. Okay. I mean, he, I, I got the, the first thing I did for him was his office was a mess, his lab office. And it had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. And he's like, okay, I want you to organize my bookshelf. Hmm. He's like, however you want to organize it, just pick a system. You can do it by author, title, region. I don't care. He's like, and I don't care how long it takes you. And, you know, so I was being paid hourly. <laughs> and so he's like, honestly, I don't give a shit what you really do. Just come in here. And I, I want, in the end of the semester, I want to see this, like, just have it be organized. <laughs> and I was like, really? So I just spent like almost an entire semester. Not by color, hopefully. Yeah, no, it would have been I cool like, actually though. <laughs> or by size. I feel like that's the, the, the method for organization for people that don't read books. Yeah, I've seen some really like. It's I'm, cool looking. Yeah, it looks of cool. Course, but, you're but like, it's pointless. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> um, I think I ended up doing it by author because I wasn't, it was hard to do by anything else. Like sure. I, I thought you had to really, really like delve if into you knew book. all the books. Sure. Were, but. but I did at the same time, like look at a lot of books, you know, I was like, wow, like this is some interesting stuff, you know? And, and it kind of coincided with, excuse me, this kind of like, um, interest in, in the outer world. Like, I mean, all of a sudden it wasn't just Asia anymore. I was like, Oh wow. Like there's stuff in like Mesoamerica and there's the Maya and there's this and that. And he had the kind of portfolio of his own research that was very diversified. Mm. He'd worked in the Arctic. He'd worked like all over the world. And so I would sometimes be in the lab like answering the phone. And this was still during the time when travel agents booked your tickets because it was mm-hmm. pre-internet, right? Mm-hmm. Or just around the time the internet, this was like 1993. I mean, even post-internet. Then. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was 1993, <laughs> you couldn't go online and check fares. You know right. what I mean? It was like, and so his travel agent would call and he wouldn't be in the office. And I'd be like, oh, you know, this is his assistant. And she'd be like, all right, here's the itinerary for his trip. And it would be this amazing like world tour itinerary where he was like lecturing in India and then going here and there and there. And I thought to myself, I'm like, is this a real thing? Like, is this man being paid for this job? Like to be like all over the place. And, you know, his ideas were cool and he was cool. And yeah, I mean, to this day, he's somebody who like, you know, he's now in his eighties or something. And I call him up and I'm like, you know, like, what do you think? And Mm -hmm. he's just this, he was that individual who opened up a door Mm -hmm. that I would have never even imagined before, but that still didn't get me. That got me into the, the field. Yeah. Um, but I'm not known for anything that I did, you know, in those, except for GIS, which is the geographic information. Like that was actually, 
the gateway. He was the pioneer, I mean, in that field, one of the first, actually, in terms of applying it to archaeology. And GIS, like, the first thing that I think of is kind of like a blown-apart look at a, a topograph, like, topographical, but like, and then you're layering all sorts of information exactly. on top. Is Basically, that- any... Google Maps is GIS. Yes. Right. Right. So, I mean, like, if you go onto your, you do a nav and you're like, okay, show me traffic. Mm-hmm. That's a layer of data. Show me um, whatever, like the satellite layer. Weather like, system. Know, weather, yeah. you know, anything. Any layer you can put down, it's all kind of matched up digitally, programmed with data. And it's so he was either, kind of a pioneer of thinking of that system? He, or well, he developing? didn't develop the system. He was one of the first archaeologists to take it from initially that kind of came out in like the seventies and early eighties as like a like pretty mapping. closed door digital mapping system. Yep. This is kind okay. of one of the early days of like spatial, you know, mm-hmm. of, of satellite imagery and these kinds of things, but it was really clunky. And by the late eighties and early nineties, the system had gotten, it was still clunky, but it was sure. enough. Fun, it was functional enough that you could, you know, have a plan of the streets of St. Louis and know, you know, those streets could be coded to say which ones are going. Elevation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, what's the overall plan? So where's water going to go? Like what's the, you know, you could kind of have. So you inf- could do some sort of pre-surveying before you actually headed out. Or you could even do an- analytics. So oh, let's wow. say okay. you wanted to know like how water was going to run off of the streets of St. Louis during a, a massive rainstorm. Hmm. Like already, I think by the, by the early nineties, that was possible. It was, it was just a, a really, um, it was a black line, like, you know, it was a, a click, a, a blinking black prompt, right? Or a white prompt on mm-hmm. a black screen. And you had to type in all the codes and it was very uh, techno- technological in the sense that you had to really know what was going on inside. Was that, it airily mapped then, back then? No, most of the maps that were being made then were like being done manually. So you would have like a paper map, let's oh. say, of, of like the, st- the city streets of St. Sure. Louis. And then you'd have grunts like me. Taking readings. Who were like clicking on the map, literally digitizing it. from paper to vector. So it was like, uh, and you know, the quality of that data was, I mean, we actually worked, I believe it was MapQuest, but like some of the early beta Mm -hmm. versions of like making functional GPS and sort of, you know, but that, you know, GPS was at that time blocked. There was, remember there was like this like uh, buffer on it, like they had a control. So they didn't release that until like 98 or something. Uh, or 99, in which case the early days of GPS, you know, the closest you could get was a couple like 20 or 30 meters accuracy. So yeah. I didn't, you know, for the, for the open populace. So anyway, <clears throat> he was one of the first people to, re- to realize that he could also look at ancient things, ancient landscapes, ancient uh, distributions of things and put it into this software and come to analytical conclusions about like, wow. you know, where early sites would be located or the nature of the relationship between you know, water, agriculture, and uh, settlement patterns, and these kinds of things. So he was like a pioneer in this, um, but it was hard. Like you had to go, you know, everything was being done in Unix, and it was like you had to really program the software to oh, do Unix, what you, line, like the operating yeah, software. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the whole operating system was in Unix, and so, hmm. you know, I had to like learn Unix, which again, <laughs> I was an engineering student, so part of me was like already learning some of this stuff. Um, and so it was not the most difficult transition, at least technologically. Um, but thematically, I was like, I didn't have an interest per se. Like, I was, you know, I, I like Japan, I liked it, I like Asia, but I wasn't like there wasn't really an intersection between the technology I was doing and the place I was sure. Working. Um, and it wasn't really until I got to grad school then, and I had you know done a handful of things in between mm-hmm. with this technology that I kind of made the choice that I was going to do it in Asia. And of course, this was like. 
the mid nineties and the Soviet union had just collapsed and central Asia was like this right. huge gaping hole in everyone's information. Um, and it was like an opportunity. And so I was like, well, let's learn about central Asia and see what's, what's a real, what are the important questions there? And, you know, central Asia is a, how old were you then? I was, point? well, I, you know, I right after, right out of college. Okay. So I went straight from undergrad to, uh, Graduate. to grad school. Um, and, uh, the process there was just like figuring out what the key questions were. Like, right. what, what don't we know? And yeah. there's tons of stuff we don't know. Right. But uh, more importantly, what was I interested in that we didn't know? And that's how I kind of came across this. I don't know. I don't know how does you know how how, do I, how does any interest sort of develop? You just read stuff. And you're like, wow, that's a really interesting and different thing that I don't think. Start about. asking yeah. questions about it. And it was nomads. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. wow, like nomadic populations are still around. Like there's mm -hmm. you know, what's going on. Like, I mean, there's just this whole world that was just like every day, like a new, like, you know, door was opening and I was sure. like, wow, this is something different. And, um, there were very few people who had thought that you could actually study nomads because the concept was nomads don't leave anything behind, right? right? They're ephemeral and they move and they're this and that and they're wandering, whatever. And so coming at it with this sort of technological background where I was like, wait a minute, well, we can map movement. We can map, you know, small traces. We don't need to have massive Maya cities to mm -hmm. be able to understand how these people live. We can actually trace their life across a larger platform. Yeah. And so there was kind of a confluence of my like maybe already now five years or so, you know, max, maximum of five years of kind of working with GIS and thinking this can be applied to this type of, you know, this social, this social category, mm -hmm. which is still both modern, but also has a deep antiquity and try to understand how it takes place in the land of the Mongols, you know, the place where like nomads mm -hmm. reign supreme. And, um, and up to this point, like, that was just one of those fresh ideas that still hadn't been explored quite. People had studied nomads and sure. people had studied the region, especially Soviet scholars. Western scholarship had very much underappreciated what was going on mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. There was like literally three or four individuals who were like actively reading that literature that I can, you know, at the time, at least in, in the late nineties. And then, um, nomads had been seen partly, this is kind of a weird, um, phenomenon, the, the development world, which, was largely dealing with nomadic populations in Africa and the Near East, mm -hmm. had kind of deemed nomadism as kind of an environmentally bad thing. Like mm -hmm. you know, it was sort of degradatory to pasture. It was increasing, you know, um, it was aridization and desertification was all because of, you know, people driving their herds across uh, the Savannah or something. And the development world kind of perpetuated this concept in the 80s. Lots and lots of literature about like, the, the detriment of pastoralism to the environment and such. And so by the early nineties, there was actually books being published like that nomadism is over. Like it's not a thing. Like were they trying to villainize nomads almost too? It or? wasn't even villainizing it. It was the idea that by sedentarizing people, getting them into villages mm -hmm. around water, you know, newly technologically developed water systems, et cetera, et cetera, you were going to improve life, right? You're going to improve health, health outcomes, you know, and this was, remember like, and natural environments and natural environments theoretically were going okay. to be improved too. Now it turns out that the exact opposite happens, right. Right? Yeah. but you know, that doesn't matter at the time. <laughs> uh, and so there was this whole thing and you can, know, you can remember like, you know, this was like, you remember, I'm not sure if you remember this, but like, you remember Band-Aid, like, you know, there yeah. was like huge drought in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. There was like all these other kinds of things going on. And so the concept was, Western development was going to 
help be the answer. Be the answer. Right? Yeah. It was gonna you know bring water to people, and you know everybody was chipping in their their tech dollars basically to like help you know the world around. White savior. Exactly. <laughs> and by the time I came to the literary kind of you know began to read this stuff, we'd already begun to see the failure of a lot of that. Sure. And people began to question again, like maybe there's something to it. And the interesting thing was that none of that affected the Soviet Union because they weren't part of the yeah, development they didn't give world. A fuck anyways. Well, they didn't, they wouldn't let us in anyway. Right? right. So you kind of had this like chronological gap mm. behind the iron curtain. Right. So anybody, so, you know, Kazakh nomads and people who were in Mongolian nomads right. or whatever, you know, which isn't to say that everybody there was a nomad, but just the populations, the sectors of those populations who were still actively playing out, you know, who are still living as herders. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't get touched by any of that Western stuff, right? Yeah. They had their own issues. I mean, the Soviets had their own interventions. But my point is simply that, you know, there was this still this kind of open window of like, oh, wait, we can still study nomads. And um, again, there was only a small number of specialists at the time who were de- dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I mean, could list them off. I mean, like, there was a very small number. And very few of them were of my generation. So I was like very young in that um, world. So how much of it was the actual aspect of nomadic tribes and, and behaviors and how much of it was like, oh, nobody is really looking at this? I think it was more the latter. Okay. Um, there was plenty to be done. Which is, I mean, you know, neither, it doesn't really matter. I'm just yeah. curious yeah. myself as I mean, to like how you picked the specialty that you ended up focusing uh, on. I mean, it was the confluence of a handful of other experiences. I mean, like my earlier experiences in in other parts of the world mm-hmm. all illustrated to me that this was still out there. That mm-hmm. There were nomads, and this this thing, I think part of it also is just the, the mystique of nomad. I mean, it kind yeah. of. I mean, think about how it's used today. Like everyone wants to be a digital nomad and blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, nobody actually knows shit about nomads. Actually, no. <laughs> like, you, know, right. you want to really know what a nomad does? I mean, it's not what you think it is. Um, and I think that that was part of it too. There was already kind of like, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a fairly, how to put this without sounding pretentious. Like I'm a fairly simple scholar. Like mm-hmm. I'm affected just like everybody else by the sort of like cool factor of what people are doing. Sure. Now that may not be the most, like maybe my employer doesn't want to hear that. Like, you know, the reasons why I do things is because it sounds cool. But like, especially at that time, you know, studying nomads sounded a hell of a lot more interesting than studying, I don't know, like the production of porcelain. Like, I, sure, they're both like interesting it, you, things. But you weren't retreading something, and in turn, it's like you. I always say that everybody has to be their own salesman right. as well. And so it's like, are you going to retread uh, the study of right porcelain exactly, or are you going to try and figure out something new that is quote unquote marketable right. to the people making the grant and funding exactly. decisions? And, and so this is sort of the irony of the whole thing in a way. So this was like 1998, right mm-hmm. when I started in grad school, and I was beginning to shape my ideas about this kind of thing. And I went to Kazakhstan for the first time in 99. Mm-hmm. So I had spent already then by 2001, which you probably know what's coming up. Mm-hmm. I had spent about two years in Central Asia. I mean, off and on, but had spent already, I'd lived there already for a solid year. Right. Spoke some of the language already. Like had seen a lot of stuff, traveled around the region. And then nine 11 happens. Mm-hmm. And like you could imagine, like all the time that happens in this country, like after the fact, everyone's like, <laughs> well, not just that. No, it's the opposite in a way. They were like, we don't know. Stan where? Like we wanted to know what uh, all the stands yeah. became yes. very interesting to everybody. Yeah. 
And, you know, Afghanistan is loaded with nomads. Afghanistan still has to this day lots of nomadic populations and roots and, you know, historical roots and tribal roots, everything else. Sure. So funding agencies, not surprisingly, started to really open up to Central Asian research. And to better understand the quote-unquote yeah, enemy. Well, I'm just the enemy, but just to understand the history of a region that we well, were like... From a government perspective. Yeah, from a government perspective. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to know where, what we were heading into. Right. And I think that that... You know, I wasn't reporting to the government, but at the same time, it was sort of a collective interest in like getting Americans to think, to learn about this place mm -hmm. in a way that was open-ended, right? It wasn't, there wasn't an agenda. It was just that sure. we don't know anything about the region, so we need to increase. So that all kind of occurred. And the people who did know, those that handful of specialists who are already out there, all of a sudden were like, inundated with, oh, I bet. you know, I mean, you can imagine the people who had spent the eighties and such, you know, working in and around Afghanistan. Uh, like you're finally interested in, uh, yeah, yeah, after yeah Uzbekistan. exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, these folks came out of the woodwork and they were part of a late, you know, cold war phase of, of, you know, during kind of, you know, uh, glasnost basically mm -hmm. when they could access aspects of the Soviet union and research other places like Afghanistan, that cadre, which was older than me, became, you know, Johnny on the spot. And then the the younger folks, I was putting in grants to go off to Kazakhstan. And they're like, yeah, whatever, Afghanistan, like whatever. Yeah, go. Wow. You know, it was like this sort of, I, that's my sense anyway. Man, it may not have been quite so flippant, but, you know, my sense was is that I was in a sense, sadly almost, or let's say morbidly ironic, I was, uh, I benefited from- A trend. A, yeah, it became this kind of like focal point at a time when our country was- really making a massive pivot mm -hmm. in their foreign policy. Interesting. And then, but you know, I just did archeology, span right? So I went and did my archeology span and you know, we made discoveries as you would expect. I mean, like, you know, you get into a new area where there hasn't been a lot of attention. You bring new technology, you bring new techniques. We worked very collaboratively and closely with local scholars who knew a lot and who were giving us a lot of, uh, you know, insights and other kinds of things. And we came up with some pretty neat and kind of game-changing discoveries through the years that then rippled into my job here. And you know, yeah. then the kind of the cast was die, or the die was cast. That I feel like there's so much information that we could cover too, because I feel like the, the, the wider field of archeology span is still just kind of operates in the dark and people don't really, you know, the only thing they know about is Indiana Jones yeah. pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And, um, I told a friend of mine, they're like, Oh my God, like, how does he dig? Like, how does right. he transport things? Who owns everything once you're digging and all this kind of stuff? And I feel like and those are already like pretty, uh, like, like laid out before you. Well, even no, start. those are questions that are are already like very intellectual in a sense. Sure. I yeah. mean, most questions, you know, are most of my colleagues who are really in the public eye mm -hmm. are primarily fighting against ancient aliens. I mean, that that's <laughs> kind of, I mean, I hate to be like so dismissive of it, but oh, like, like, what's the dude's name with the hair? Oh yeah. I can't remember. There's a lot yes. of folks who are like still, armchair, armchair archeology. span Well, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's where a lot of media publicity is. Right. And yeah. you know, cause it's easy to understand and it's, uh, you it's know, catchy, right? I mean, heck if you can, fills an hour of TV, yeah, you know, if you're sitting there sipping on a, whatever, you know, like, <laughs> It's interesting to think that maybe an alien built Stonehenge. I promise you they didn't, but let's just, you know, like, you know, that's a thing. And so the questions your friends are asking are, are already like very legitimate and normal and like, right. you know, they're like, fine. Well, I mean, they're questions I have too. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you don't, you think about something in a bubble right. and you think about the, what the mass media has showed you before you actually start to dig in intellectually and be like, okay, you know, 
what I guess what is even the purpose of archaeology? You know, what drives right. someone to do that? I think that's a really that's a really deep question, actually. Yeah. And one that's kind of much very much in controversy right now. Um, you know, the scientist in me and the scientists out there, which represents a large portion of archaeologists, are really looking at it as a scientific endeavor. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, can we explain and document or document, explain and interpret the trash of the past, basically, right? Whatever we leave, right. you know, if you we were to just sort of like collapse this building and then come back, you know, 2,000 years later, what would it sh- show us about Kevin Kelly? Sure. Um, and what does Kevin Kelly have to say about society? And mm-hmm. what does St. Louis have to say about, it's, you know, the bigger, so you have these kind right. of concentric levels of, of extrapolation from the cup you're drinking from to power, status, you know, religion, and mm-hmm. every other kind of major institutional uh, realm that we deal with today. So, I mean, archaeology is kind of this weird, um, I like to think of it like a, like a, a Jedi science of sorts, right? Mm-hmm. You, you basically have like these elements that you have to kind of pull together in a mystical way to mm-hmm. make a narrative that is both anthropologically rigorous and scientifically rigorous, yet also satisfies um, a social story. Yeah. And that's really where the purposes become sometimes misaligned, right? Because the science side is relatively easy. Like if I found your mug, I could do some residue analysis and say, oh, it was definitely tea. Like he was definitely drinking tea versus mine, which is definitely coffee. Um, And we know that the coffee came from here and there. You know, we could all these like facts we could lay out. Um, But can I say then that what's the power dynamic uh, or why? what is the nature of your social status in the broader city yeah. by virtue of that cup? Maybe not. And this is where then like theory comes into theory play. comes into play. You know all these other things. And and so peop- that theory then is also rooted in some very sort of um, a priori setup, right? Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is like if you're a Marxist, mm-hmm. then you could na- you could narrate the story of us sitting here drinking coffee and tea as proletariat struggle. Yeah. You know, if you're a capitalist, you could say, look, they were trading in coffee and tea. Right. So, I mean, there's different ways of like contextualizing the same scientific fact. Yeah. And then that becomes, comes down to all sorts of other historical factors. Like, you know, um, some of my favorite examples of this are the way in which archeologists use, um, or have begun to re contextualize the data from the pers- from the perspective of different identities, so you know uh, one meaning, of the one of the mean? one of the big critiques has been that you know the the, the discipline has been largely you know, over the last hundred years, which is only archaeology is only about a hundred years old, plus right. or minus, is that it's been largely dominated by upper class white men. Mm-hmm. Like that's been kind of the the dominant. You know, the archaeological image is of you know a white dude with a beard with a hat. And, you know, that's the thing. Um, and thus women and people of color and native individuals and aboriginals, et cetera, have all been kind of like, you know, treated like the object of study mm. and instead all of developing sort of, the theories and the, right. Instead yeah. of, instead of being asked as to, or even having the access to be able to say, no, this is what was going on. Yeah. Um, and so there's sort of a vanguard aspect where it's like, let us tell you about your past. Mm, all right. Mm-hmm. And so this was rooted in a very colonialist approach to archaeology. So you think of like, you know, the discovery of tombs in Egypt. Yeah. This was a very colonialist endeavor, right? You had like British dudes uh, or German dudes or whatever the case may be, 
you know, um, with huge teams, huge amounts of financing and a bunch of Egyptians doing what those men are telling them to do, mm-hmm. then they take the stuff and they put it in the British museum and they found civilization. Right. right. So it's like the, the attribution is look, we've, we've found it. Yeah. Um, and, and here's what happened. And here's what happened. Here's the story of your people. <laughs> right. And to a certain extent that hasn't changed to be honest. Like there's an element to that where, I mean, I'm still telling stories about parts of the world where I didn't, I don't have ancestry or something. Sure. Now, does that mean I can't tell those stories? No, but it does mean that I should listen to a broader array of voices and try to incorporate those voices in a way that's relevant both now, but also that kind of has a, a degree of reflexivity. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the intellectual way of saying, pay attention to the fact that our discipline was built on a very kind of, well, not even kind of, a very colonialist, racist kind of background. Sure. And that's most scientific disciplines, at yeah. least in the Western tra- tra- tradition. Um, when it's math or physics, I mean, maybe there's less sort of personal politics, personality, you know, uh, ethnic politics and, and related. But when it's archaeology, especially foreign archaeology, it's important. It's how, how is that gap reconciled? Is it like taking into consideration maybe oral histories? Well, I, I think it's imp- I think more important that is part of it certainly, but I think it's incorporating communities uh, as stakeholders. Oh, of so course. So like yeah. you know, you just get locals and people who are involved. And it's not as simple as that in many cases, right? Yeah. I mean, but you know, for my work, for example, I don't ever work alone. Mm-hmm. Like I work at the behest of my local collaborators, mm-hmm. and in the best of all worlds, which I believe is the the case in my experience, um, myself and the local collaborators, we come to terms with what our interests are. And, you know, they sometimes are different, but sometimes they're complementary. And hopefully in the long run, your project shape addresses questions that address, that help everybody. Sure. Um, Both, you know, if if you say, well, what what are my goals? Well, my goals are to explain that, or to use the broad global past as a way of making people in this country and in my immediate kind of you know sphere of influence, so to speak, or sphere of interaction, appreciate that civilization maybe isn't what we always think it is, mm-hmm. right? Civilization isn't just, you know, the ability to build massive monumental architecture or, you know, all the sort of benchmarks that we imagine as civilization. Civilization is being alive as a human. Like yeah. that's the nature of civilization. And, you know, that narrative led to you know, Native American genocide, right? The narrative that civilization must, these people must be given civilization, right? That concept is at the root of some really serious historical moments. Sure. So if I'm doing anything, I'm trying to reorient or prevent any kind of like reiteration of that under some modernized framework, which oftentimes, you know, again, going back to the development community, it can seem very benevolent, Yeah. right? Or it's like, you know, we want to free people or bring freedom to people. Well, it's typically reinforced by religious belief as well, which right. there's been a separation of that from that. <laughs> Totally. Thankfully. And, and so, you know, we, meaning Americans, Westerners, whatever, are really locked into this concept of Western civilization as a product of sort of natural development. This is sort mm-hmm. of the way things must be. Yeah. And, you know, you spend a lot of time in China. and it's such a short memory. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wait a minute. There's, first of all, there's a whole other set of things. And mm-hmm. then you go out, okay, that's just major epicenters, right? There's your kind of, you know, East Asian, China, you know, ma- massive civilizations and your Western European and your new, you know. But then you go into other indigenous communities where you're like, okay, let's look at Mesoamerica or South America or Brasilia or other places, you know, regions where... Um, 
there's also civilization and there has right. been for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So, but they don't look like our, they don't look like Rome, right? right, right so right, do they right, not right. count? Right? Do they know, you know, and I, I've literally had even scholars ask me about parts of the world and been like, well, you know, how about like 10,000 years ago, would you call those people a civilization? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'd call them a civilization. Right. Like they're alive and they have beliefs and kids and families and they bury their people in cemetery. Like, you know, yes, it's a civilization, 100%. I mean, it just doesn't look like what you think is civilization. Technically, it would be kind of any agrarian society. It doesn't after. even have to be agrarian. I mean, it could be anything. Like even the hunter. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like think about like, again, like this notion that- It like, doesn't have to be, to your point about the nomads, it doesn't have to be a- place a specific exactly. place in and okay so from my viewpoint and i i've interesting. i forwarding i forward this this theory in in my recent my current book which i'm not finished with I'm, I'm finishing it hopefully soon that if we shed the idea that civilization comes with specific benchmarks of any kind right whether it's agriculture or urbanization or the written word or whatever mm -hmm. that these are not the benchmarks of civilization but the, the benchmarks of civilization lie in our ability to socialize institutions. Hmm. And what is an institution? Well, an institution can be very formalized, like the kinds of ones we have in this country, right? Like legal institutions, et cetera. Or they can be cultural institutions, the kinds of things that are de facto the way things are done. Mm. And this isn't really my idea. This is actually uh, some ideas from uh, a former professor here at, at Wash U who actually won a Nobel Prize for some of these ideas um, about institutions. And the idea that- What was his name? His name's Doug North. Okay. And Doug North's ideas about institutions were that they are as institutional at the level of rules and codified ways of acting mm -hmm. as they are- when they're written down or formalized. And so this takes us Ben very back, very much into early, early days, right? Like right. the minute humanity starts to agree that this is how things are done and can do that outside of say their immediate kinship group or outside of their immediate, like most immediate family, you have the gear work of civilization. Yeah. And the regardless minute, of record keeping and yeah, exactly. like, image making and you writing. Know, so you go back to individuals who, however big that group may be or however, however far that, um, set of shared, I call it participation, right? It's like mm. this sort of realm of participation. That realm is the boundaries of that population's notions of civilization. Yeah. So who are we to say that just because, you know, you didn't grow crops that you're not civilized? Like, right. why? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It just, it, again, it really forces us to totally revamp. It's so, a complete paradigm shift on how everything has been looked at up until that point. Well, yeah, because the idea has been that there's like this notion of evolution from sure. simple to complex and yeah. that we are at the pinnacle of complexity. Right. Which honestly, I don't believe. Like I think That's that complexity is differently deployed and it may be, um, you know, people, I, I've had people say to me, you know, in, in both public and in academic arenas, say things like, well, surely you wouldn't argue that it's as complex to live in a small village you know, where you don't know anybody outside your village than it is to live in today's, into New York, in New York City, where are all the moving parts. And I say, well, uh, an assumption. yeah, I mean, honestly, first of all, we're, you're assuming that people didn't have any connectivity, which we're now demonstrating archeologically goes way, way back, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of genetics, in terms of people actually physically communicating with one another, but also through trade and other kinds of things. So there's those aspects of it, but even just at a theoretical level, 
the the lived experience of any individual in a, even in a major metropolitan city like that's take whatever Shanghai mm-hmm. some really really off the charts is probably not that much different than an individual living in a village. <laughs> it's just simply that there's the 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 compression of it yeah. is like it's like a million villages compressed into an, an area. And this is another area where like my- What's well, almost like saying the complexity is in the system around them instead of the day-to-day decisions that individuals yeah. making, and which are probably pretty much the same in a lot of respects. I, I would argue exactly that. And then you say, okay, well, is it more complex if everything's compressed tightly and it's sort of this you know very you know knotty kind of thing? Or if it's actually stretched out over vast territory, <laughs> how much more complex would it be if you if you dropped like a New Yorker mm. in the wilderness and said, "Get yourself some supplies." Yeah, what's the complexity that goes into that? Like, there's also a whole other level of kind of like civilizational modes, right, that you need to have in order to be able to survive in that world. So again, it's like trying to strip ourselves of this ingrained historical picture of who we are, sure. which is almost impossible. And you still kind of always are struggling with it yeah. while simultaneously accepting the fact that there's so much to be learned from the people who are otherwise the objects of your study. Right. So like, it's almost like you have to look at it as, yeah, this sounds stupid as if you are an, an alien yeah. looking at human civilizations. Right. And say, and not knowing the difference between the two. Exactly. Like having no sort of notion that, oh, things are going to become, you know, like kind of. Just and that your own biases probably are, you have to like, re-que- like re-question them every single day of what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. And, and that's hard to do, right? Because of course it's, you still have to communicate. In some ways within, it might be impossible. I mean, it definitely is yeah, in I some mean, ways. The, the very first phrase, the, the my, so my book starts with, um, I think a, pretty like, I find it kind of cool. I don't know, whatever, maybe no one else does. Uh, a sentence that says, um, what if civilization isn't what you thought it was? Mm-hmm. And then more appropriately, would you recognize it? And I, and I think that that really defines a lot of what my career has been about. And it's either through nomads or through looking at, you know, now recent, more recently looking at, like, at urbanism. You know, are there things that we're just missing? Because... Yeah we expect it to be a certain way. So what's your audience going to be for this book? You know, it's, going back to what acad- we were talking it's about. It's academic, but it's less, um, less strict. So mm-hmm. the book is written for the, the design, the key, like the, the described audience is kind of like an undergraduate or informed, mm-hmm. uh, scholarly individual. So it would be readable and sure. I'm writing it in a more narrative style. I'm actually dictating a lot of it um, oh, just cool. for personal, for physical reasons, like <laughs> typing. Speaking. Will you do an audio um, version? I'm sure I will. I, I don't know who would read it, but I mean, we'll you. see. I, I, I'd love that, but we'll see. What, <laughs> I mean, that really depends on... Interest? You know, well, on interest and also the the, the publishing house. But um, I think that is something that they, do, they now do. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the idea is to kind of introduce Central Asia as an alternative way of thinking about civilization over the long term. Mm-hmm. Right? So going, okay, like let's go, let's go back 10,000 years and track what's going on in terms of these realms, these mm-hmm. participatory realms and how do people um, shape their world? Like, you know, is your, every human being of any economy of any scale of anything has in their mind a world that yeah. is their civilization. So to deny any population present or past of that, fundamental reality 
is shocking to me. Like I, I just can't even wrap my head is around it, how that could be. Is it helpful or hurtful to make modern comparisons to what you're doing? You mean in terms of like, um, like saying like, uh, how other rural, um, like a cattle rancher, yeah, how he interacts with his community. And I think it, 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 like, pay, can you even good. make those kind of, yeah, comparisons? I think that the more, the more kind of like analogies that you can find, I mean, a lot of it has to do with like, with specific contexts, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, you can't just like randomly grab right. things, but at the same time, like definitely, I mean, the only way this kind of thing is ever going to take hold and people are going to begin. And I actually have a, a friend of mine, a, a colleague who's, who writes about similar, very similar ideas. Um, uh, he's a British archaeologist named David Wangro. And he's actually a, probably more successful than me, at least in terms of getting access to public writing and other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. He just works in a different part of the world. Perhaps more, more importantly, he works in Egypt, which is, of course, mm -hmm. been always held up as a pinnacle of civilization. Right. Um, so he kind of comes at it from trying to re, you know, tear it down from the top down. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to tear it down from the bottom up. Um, but he and I, you know, see very similarly, uh, some of the issues with the concept. So the concept itself, so some people say, just throw it out. Like why, why even keep the concept? Yeah. And the reason why is because it's still a concept for everybody else. So even if our, so this comes back to your point about operating in a kind of a dark room, like archeologists can decide that they want to do away with whatever term they like. Yeah. But 99% of the population doesn't. Right. And so they're still thinking, oh, well, the civilization emerges at some point. Like everyone's kind of wandering around with like, you know, dirty fingernails until all of a sudden one day civilization starts and everything's <laughs> great. Like, and, you know, you can immediately see the, the, the complications that that sure. brings to the way we see foreign populations, populations here in our own country. I mean, any number of different injustices that then get kind of categorized and used with that same rhetoric. So for me, it's a very contemporary issue, a, a social issue, yeah. uh, and, a, and I guess a moral issue in a sense, but it's something that can actually be addressed using very rigorous science to say, hey, it's not just my, my joy, I'm not just happy to show you that there's sure. different civilizations, but here's evidence for how we can tear down some of these sort of really ingrained like frameworks. Interesting. Do you have a desire to write for the general public audience someday? I do, actually. So my goal is to finish this book, which has been a number of years in the making. Um, and I'm hoping to get it done as soon as possible and move rapidly into a couple of other book projects that I have. Um, and one of them, which is, I actually just, I gave a, a TEDx talk on it here at, at Wash U. Oh, cool. Um, we'll link to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Utopia Dystopia, mm -hmm. and it's very much driven by the current political moment. <laughs> yeah, but it's this notion that like utopia, the, the utopian aspirations that people have and have had. Mm -hmm. I've argued in the talk, and I argue in the sort of framework for this book, actually are fundamentally at the root of humankind. Mm -hmm. In other words, when we start to shape our world from you know, pre-modern humans into modern homo sapiens, I think one of the things that's cognitively happening is that we start to look at the world, the natural world, and say, wouldn't it be nice if, fill in the blank, right? Wouldn't yeah. it be nice if we had could warm up our cave? Like, <laughs> right? So if you just sort of take this concept of utopia and strip it down, right, and say, okay, a utopia is an ideal idealized place that can never really be achieved, right? That's kind of the idea of utopia. Um, and yet all of our aspirations, our progress, so to speak, mm -hmm. 
has probably at some level been, you could equate to this aspiration towards a utopian vision. Now, the idea of warming up a cave today would not be considered utopian. a utopian. Right. It, would, it would be considered a dystopia, right? right. <laughs> um, which is the irony of the whole thing, right? So our sort of historical change of what this is is physically different, but conceptually very similar. And the irony about it is that as we consistently think that we're, con you know, we consistently as humanity think that we're at the utopian, the, the, the edge of the utopia, right? right. So the first people, the people to, to build the first city were like, oh my God, like we have a city. Like, this is amazing. Like we're, this must be utopia. Can you define utopia? Um, I mean, the, I mean, I, cause yeah, I have so, my own so the, general idea of what I consider that. I, but. I, the, I think the definition of utopia from the Greek sure. is we can look it up. Yeah, I think it's no place. <laughs> okay, is what it actually is. The is the the that's interesting. Yeah, um, but check it because I, yeah, I might be wrong. Um, but I mean, but in the, your the, but, in, but it, it comes from the, this book written in the 16th century called Utopia, mm -hmm. where basically like this author um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but again, something that we could easily find is essentially criticizing the British Crown. And he describes this island, the island of utopia, where basically like everything functions, you know, where like the legal system functions and food distribution is logical and, you know, the world is basically a perfect place. And imagine a place or state of things in which everything is perfect. Right. But then the actual Greek no etymology. Place. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so it's the, 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 the basic definition is a utopian, you know, utopian paradise. Right. right. But the term itself is ironic because it actually translates. It says that it can as, exist. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So he describes this island of utopia where like everything is perfect and this individual who he meets kind of describes to him this wonderful place. But the concept has been written massively about. I mean, sure, of course. You know, tomes and tomes and tomes about how utopia fits into so many different things. And so I, but where I think the book, where my book idea anyway strikes a chord with today's moment is that we are at this threshold again of like technology, um, human intervention in the environment, um, all of these things. And the utopian aspiration today mm -hmm. has very tangible, you know, AI mm -hmm. has very tangible dystopian <laughs> risks. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to look farther than, you know, the Terminator type, you know, uh, just, you know, dystopian futures or Mad Max, you know, like all these sci-fi kind of expressions of what our current edge, you know, we're, we're right at the precipice of like, you know, it's not unfathomable to live in a Mad Max world right? no, no, no. at all. Like where like yeah. resources are all gone and water's evaporated off the surface. And, you know, Elon else Musk just launched that cyber truck. And I, and, <laughs> and in my, in my talk, I actually, uh, you know, pick it at Elon Musk a little bit for the whole Mars urbanism thing. And this yeah. brings us back to archeology span because we are on the path that is dependent. So like we depend on the idea of urbanism and agriculture and such to be the model for civilization. So therefore when you settle Mars, of course it's going to look like that. Yeah. But if you look at anybody who lives in an arid environment or a dry, hot environment, they don't live as that. They're nomads. Right. Right. So like we have skipped over tens of thousands of years of people who have figured out how to operate on this planet in a basic form of, of uh, sustainability. Yeah. And, instead favored this seemingly arbitrary model of civilization that then will be the future for everybody, which I think is actually a dystopian hell hell. Like yeah, the notion of living on like some Musk, Elon Musk camp on Mars is hell to me. Yeah. And 
I think that that is kind of where the, ju- the, the friction is between the term. And so, um, yeah, the book is kind of an archaeological journey of uh, utopianism mm-hmm. and, in a sense, also showing whatever that reflection is in the, the dystopian pool to see what happens. Um, so no one out there steal my idea. The book's not done <laughs> and it's not contracted. So you can have it or whatever, but it's fine. <laughs> if you do it, do a good job. <laughs> so after you finish this book, I'm kind of curious how hard is it to switch or uh, develop your focus further? Like once you tend to become known for a certain field of focus and you kind of want to run with that a little bit and, 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 you know, there's a steam and a claim that comes with that as well as getting to know your, your, your focus even better. Yeah. How hard is it for you to say, okay, time to drop that time, you know, everybody's on board, time to shift focus and figure something else out. Well, I mean, part of it is, I mean, the, the fortunate side of the, of, of that sort of inevitability is that in the process of doing this, you know, I'm not just me, right? So I have, I have like my graduate students and there's kind of a whole operative system underlying you know, whatever I'm doing. And so in many cases, um, you know, younger scholars and graduate students and folks like that can carry the torch mm-hmm. onward. Um, and I can still participate. We still co-publish. So I never like have to really totally cut the cord. I can still maintain a foothold or let's say a, a, a voice in say central Asian prehistory or all these other topics. While- Is it similar to what Dr. North did like in terms of you coming underneath that well, umbrella? Well, I mean, I, I I didn't have a mentorship relationship with him in that gotcha. regard. Okay. I just read his work. Sure. But okay. um, I'm sure there's plenty of other people who carried on his research, right? yeah. his own graduate students and other kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, for example, I've not totally stopped, but uh, for the meantime, I'm not actively excavating anything in Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. but... Um, I did work there for 20 years and my, I raised a hand, you know, helped graduate a number of, uh, uh, graduate students who are perpetuating the work and who are taking it to the next level and doing other things. And then I can kind of come back in as more sort of a senior voice in to see of, what they've discovered yeah, then. and to kind of help interpret, you know, if they use my data or whatever. So there's sort of an ongoing relationship, but then that frees me up a little bit to explore new areas. Mm. Um, and so <clears throat> it's nice in that regard to have this kind of mentorship, you know, you can think of it almost like a, a craftsperson, right? Sure. Who has uh, sort of, who trains um, apprentices who then yeah. become their own masters. And so they, they each are building their own mastered, mm-hmm. you know, realms out of what they may have gained, gained something from me. And then I can, you know, we can kind of continue to collaborate and I can branch in other directions. And yeah. So many times they don't get cited as co-authors. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that, you know, I'm pretty adamant about. I mean, I have, I have kind of a system with my graduate students where, you know, we, I, as, as they progress through the, the program, mm-hmm. um, they, well, in this sort of an early stage where maintain they maintain some sort of ownership. Yeah, exactly. And they start off as kind of being, you know, assisting and then they move and steadily move towards the front end of the publication. Mm-hmm. And by time they're kind of ready to hit the world and the world needs to know about them and their work is really highlighted, you know, they're at the front end of the publication. That's cool. And then I end up kind of oppositely move towards the back. So I'm sure that hasn't always been the case. It hasn't always been, but it's, it's pretty standard to me now in science. I mean, you see a lot of papers in which the senior lab leader or whatever is the last author. And that's kind of understood as being um, on the one level, kind of the, the senior individual who maybe controls some of the funding or who controls some of the access or who has had a longer uh, history of working in a particular area or on a particular topic. 
but a lot of the actual like nitty gritty work is being done by the people on the front end of the publication. Sure. And so, you know, that's kind of a launch pad for people's careers as much as possible. So, I mean, that's an advantage to me too, because that means I can keep the wheels running, so to speak, while branching and exploring new things uh, as my career goes in different directions. Is there the same kind of um, uh, situation right now in archaeology at all to where the field is pushing itself to publish uh, without a ton of peer review and then like perpetuating things just to get it out there to get the the notoriety which in turn gives way to funding there's some of that yeah um is it less persistent in archaeology i I feel like for some reason it would be it's less only because um it's a small discipline right right so you know the number of times archaeology strictly you know no i don't mean like you know, ancient human fossils or things like that. But the, the number of times that like, you know, prehistoric archaeology is in the pages of nature science, you know, the really the, t- the top pinnacle journals is comparatively low mm-hmm. to medical field, to course, yeah. DNA, to, you know, uh, genetics, et cetera. So, or, or even, you know, um, simple things like, you know, molecular biology or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, not simple, but I mean, you know, like very much more, much more kind of like standard, um, long-term disciplines. So archaeology has its own journals, right? Which are peer reviewed by archaeologists, mm-hmm. but they're ones that, you know, no one ever reads or no one else would ever hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only in really the recent years, like I'd say the last five or 10 that archaeology, archaeologists have begun to realize that the currency of their science is also pretty high profile. Yeah. And so, um, you're starting to see more and more, Archaeology published in really high high end journals, high impact journals, mm-hmm. um, and discoveries of you know new scientific new, new 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 scientific discoveries, new scientific conclusions are being promoted as having the kind of impact that say you would see in other fields. Um, that being said, there's always been a circulation of ideas um, at kind of the gray paper level, right where. I guess white papers is what they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where people put out stuff, they present at conferences, like, you know, even just this, right? Like, you know, I'm talking about ideas that aren't published, right? So if I were really concerned about the world of someone stealing my idea, yeah, then I wouldn't say anything. Right. Right. But in archaeology, it's harder to do because, like I was saying right at the beginning of our conversation, like, you just don't stumble into knowing a lot about archaeology. It, right. it, it takes a lot to kind of really get... Um, a, a good grasp of so what's going on and to not sort of be botching it. And right. it's ironic that a lot of the most sort of popular information people have about archaeology is communicated to them by people who are themselves not really archaeologists. Sure. who actually haven't been out digging in the ground doing the archaeology. Um, and so there's this sort of, yeah, there's sort of a well, the, the, dilettantism to some of it that maybe reflects... And you can get a lot of information on the internet that isn't necessarily, that wouldn't pass peer review. Well, because it always takes a great communicator in any specific field, like we've said, in order to communicate the importance and the fundamental understanding to a fifth grader or whatever it is. Right, right, right. Um, And that just, that's another, a lot of people just aren't good writers. Totally. And especially within academic fields, like, and even I struggle with this. I mean, you get stuck with the nuances, right? Yeah. So if, when you know the nuances are there, it's a lot harder for you to make a blanket statement. Like even some of the things, you know, like if I were writing this the conversation that we're having now, if mm-hmm. I were writing this for a paper, 
you know, me just saying like, people think this, it demands like four or five major references and me going back to like the 19, probably the 19th century and having like a really showing a very strong intellectual and academic competence in the history of that concept of civilization right. to just say, simply say something as basic as archaeologists have thought civilization was like this. Right. And if I don't put those citations down, <laughs> someone in the peer review is going to be like, wow, you, they didn't cite blah, blah, blah. You know, and so, you know, you have to kind of show your, your train of your, thought, your chain yeah. of thought and your chops and give credit for people whose ideas have come before you. And of course, every year that goes by, there's more and more stuff published. Right. There's an incredible density of, of love literature and you kind of can't. So, um, it's easy if you're just trying to write a popular book to say what you want, because no one's going to hold you to that, <laughs> that level. Sure. But the, if you are a scholar, then you run the risk of them being discredited. So it's like you kind of have this, uh, you're, you're fighting with a hand tie behind your back because you don't have the freedom to say what you want. Whereas Jared Diamond, who's not an archaeologist, can write about prehistoric societies with far more fluidity mm -hmm. because he's not held to the archaeological community. And that's sort of an interesting sort of case. I mean, I've well, often been asked about him. Yeah, I mean, could you not make a stipulation this say, I mean, I guess that on one hand discounts what you're about to put out into the world by saying that like, okay, some of these things have not been uh, cited to the 10th degree. Yeah. I mean, you can frame your study within a smaller box and yeah. say, listen, I, I wasn't unable, I'm not able to read everything that's ever been written about, you know, especially topics that have been heavily covered. Yeah. But you should be able to nail some of the major topics and not botch them. Right. And this is sort of what ends up happening a lot of times with popular books is that, you know, you're writing flu fluidly, your editor wants the, wants the, the print like pretty quick, you're moving fast. And so you're like, well, I'm just going to say what I think and let it, let it, you know, see what sticks. And that's great if you're making money as a person who's selling books. Mm -hmm. But if you're making money as a scholar or if your job is to be a scholar, you hope that that book is going to hold the test of time and right. have some like rigor to it. And that's sometimes at odds because to explain the rigor behind what you're saying sometimes gets boring. Like, you know, right. I mean, the details are boring half the time. So, you know, how do you make an argument that is ultimately derived from not much more than the contents of your trash can, <laughs> like really, really compelling and have this really, really important theoretical contribution. Yeah. So you take Jared Diamond's you know book, right? I mean, like, the the the, his, the, book uh, the the his most famous book is Guns Germs and Steel. Oh yeah, you know which We've everybody has heard of, and yeah. you know, it's, it's probably the most highly read archaeology book out there. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's probably you know, if not, it's it's close. You know, enormously criticized by archaeologists. Um, yeah, we talked about this yeah. at that mezcal tasting. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> in um, that, in that, like I, I, the basic idea is that. Um, this guy has written something that has popularized this idea of human civilization right. and how it's progressed. And while being completely filled with things that you could debate as an error or, uh, you know, a metaphor taken the wrong way, it's still bringing the conversation into the public arena. Exactly. I mean, right? more people take archaeology classes in college because yes. they read Guns, Germs, and Steel than any individual who ever read my book. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying my book is some like, you know, Ben, you know, gold standard or anything. I'm just saying that comparatively, there's probably fewer errors in my book, but right. it's also a hell of a lot more boring to read and <laughs> has a lot, you know, my first book, right, which was designed that way. Sure. 
Um, and so, you know, as we, as I moved later in my career and gained more and more sort of capacity and the and sort of basis for, you know, being able to have a voice, um, very much in the same way that Michael Yamashita has a basis for being a photographer, mm-hmm. you know, you get to say what you want to say and people listen to you more. And so that's an upside, but also a danger of this sort of process. Right. And so p- writing more popularly is hard. Um, yeah. I, I had a really great conversation not long ago, actually about two, three months ago with Michael Pollan. Mm. He was, uh, wow. in t- he was in town to give a lecture at Wash U and, uh, I was fortunate enough, enough to be, to go to dinner and he's super down to earth and like really easy to talk to. And, um, probably one of the most like fluid writers that I've read, you know, Mm -hmm. you read his stuff, you're like, this is, you know, you can breeze through it and it's yet it's impactful and it's got good research and and the whole thing. And to write like that is not easy. Mm -mm. You know, writing like that is, um, it takes both a a very uh, strong understanding of the material at a, at a fundamental level, Mm -hmm. but then also understanding how to communicate in a natural way. Yeah. And, which requires a lot of reading of those types of books as well. And, you know, and also just finding your, your, um, your approach. So one, I guess they call it a workflow, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that I found recently, like very recently, I mean, in the last five years in my career, um, is I've changed my workflow drastically. Mm. And that is, I used to bang my head against the keyboard, you know, and try to get text to sound smooth and whatever. Right. And people would always say, well, yeah, but you, when you explain it to me, it sounds great. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And so I just started saying, well, you know, I'm not going to write anymore. It's going to dictate. I'm just going to dictate. That's cool. And then I'll go back and reduce it and fix it and put in the references and make sure it's English, you know, cause I still sure. have my like, you know, upstate New York accent. Or whatever. <laughs> but nevertheless, like it creates a more um, narrative style. Mm-hmm. And in, in a way that's another reason for, traveling a lot, giving lectures. It's like it hones your way of talking about things such that it, on the one hand can be, you know, if you can explain it to someone in an, in an hour yeah, or like even just that last bit we, we talked about, you know, in terms of civilization, like being able to encapsulate that in 20 minutes in a way that people can understand and everybody, whether you've read archaeology or not, sure. that can go into a book. I mean, that can be read and as well. And as long as you put in the right citations and the footnotes and everything else, then you've got some, a rigorous argument potentially. And so it's, it's yeah. a question of even reformatting your own workflow. And I think that that's well, harder would, for people to do. I always say that you, you know, we all know things. We all have things that we've studied, things that we've executed, things that we've worked on, thought about, read about. And the benefit of doing a podcast like this is that it helps me to reinforce what it is that I think I believe. Right. So like, yes, you have these ideas about civilizations and you've thought about them, read about them. Maybe you've had informal conversations once or twice. But when you finally put it out there and, and like when you record something, it makes you think a little bit further about it sure. than if you're at a party right. having mezcal and you're yeah. just kind of like, you're you're saying something that you think is interesting, but there may also be a little bullshit behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the, doing this, you know, sober-minded and sometimes not, <laughs> uh, helps to reinforce what you already know. Right. And that's why I think, Anytime I'm doing these, it it requires that connection from the brain to the mouth to be reinforced over and over and over again. Yeah, and to catch yourself saying things where you're like, wait a minute, let me back up on that. Because right. Because like, I, 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 that came out of my mouth, but actually it's And now, difficult yeah. ideas too. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just like, you, you may have an idea, a, a complicated idea about, you know, uh, for example, you're talking about, about the, the historically white male 
um, view of all civilization. And like uh, nowadays, both sides would be triggered by you saying that. Right. You're like, wow, you can't, no white male archaeologist anymore? Like, yeah. No, that's not what I'm saying. Right, exactly. So you can find yourself, you, you know, to, into pitfall, You have to yeah. put nuance into how you're exactly. describing everything. And, you know, and, and, and there's value in that because I think, you know, we are in a world of, how many characters do you get on Twitter? I, 40 years? I don't know. know. They doubled it, it recently yeah. or something. But, you know, a small, like these little, like, yeah, like yeah. these, like these small blurbs. Takeaways. Right? Yeah, takeaways. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, but there's a lot more nuance to this. Yes. And so, you know, basically people just start doing these like threads, right? Yes. So it's like, okay, so you're not actually doing tweets anymore. You're doing small essays. Right. Because honestly, you can't get it out in 140 words. And we no. see what happens when people do that is like just ends up being flippant and ignorant and making mistakes. And so, you know, you want to have that space to say, wait a minute, let me, I may have said that and mm -hmm. that's true to an extent, but there's nuance to it. And I think that, you know, when we find in most disciplines, you know, people putting their foot in their mouth, it's because a, they haven't thought very hard about what they're talking about. Right. B they're not practiced, yeah. which is another issue is, you know, practicing your workflow and how you actually go from what you think, you know, to what you say to then, Convict, being convicted about what you're saying is a really each person has their own process for that right well and it, it, you know Twitter especially it's like people are just shouting things literally into the air yeah. that's what I look at like Twitter right and would you say that same thing to any one of the persons following you exactly you know, one on one no probably not or, yeah, or you'd say <laughs> yeah but you know this is right I don't know. I mean, I think that writing a book or writing any kind of academic piece or an article or really, really anything, any kind yeah. of like when you're willing to put your name behind what you're saying, um, in this day and age, you know, you have to be willing to also pay the price for what that is. And there are individuals, uh, from the top to bottom who are unwilling to pay the price for, for what they have to say, yeah. or they just feel like there is no price to pay or likewise, are not interested in investing in that expertise. And, and I think that like, if anything, you know, if I had some sort of a takeaway message about what, where I am now and kind of how I came into all this and what it's afforded any, if it's afforded any opportunity to me, mm -hmm. it's the ability to say, to, to be grateful for the opportunity to learn uh, about the world, about the, about the past, about the present day and age, and to devote energy to saying something with some nuance in a way that people can actually understand. Totally. And, and I, I'm not there yet, I guess. I probably Me have neither. a long road to go. <laughs> but um, I'm hoping that with every every book, every kind of execution of my research, every conversation, mm -hmm. that I get closer and closer to bringing facts and science to people's lives, but at the same time, wrapping that in sort of a jacket cover that is um, that has nuance, yeah. that, that allows them to find truth within it for themselves, but also to say, okay, but I can see where he's coming from. Sure. And that's, that's a lifelong thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, man, I know you're on a time, uh, uh, time, uh, what's the, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, we've been here for I know you're on a timeline, but, um, there's so many questions I didn't even get to cover. This went completely different, but in a beautiful way. I thought it's very interesting, just at this very surface level, not even surface, but baseline understanding of how you approach it is what you study, where you've come from, and where you are today. And I can't wait to have you back to talk right. about some of these I'd like to follow up. more in-depth topics, especially technology. I want to talk a lot more about AI 
and uh, uh, aerial laser data, too, oh, yeah. which I cool. think is super interesting. Oh, man, so many cool areas. So right on. Where can people find you? Um, they can find me um, on Twitter at MD Freshetti. Okay. Uh, they can find me on Instagram at the same exact handle, MD Freshetti. Um, they can find me at Washington University in St. Louis, where I'm a, a faculty member in the anthropology department. And uh, and your book is my, maybe coming out next year? Or? Uh, let's hope. My okay. first book is uh, is out with California Press. It's called uh, Pastoralist Landscapes, and that was published in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, like I said, an academic read. And my new book it will be called uh, Ancient Inner Asia. And yeah, next year. Awesome. It depends on a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the the process basically yeah right on man well i'm uh, i'm very happy that we got to meet and cool. i think this podcast is going to go go down and uh be very interesting for other people to listen to so awesome i hope so get home to those babies <laughs> Thanks. peace Bye. man man oh man oh man i really enjoyed where we were going with that conversation there towards the end so many more questions i have to talk to him about the next time he's on the podcast um if you like this podcast Please rate and review it. I'm told that that helps. Uh, Share it on social. uh, Discuss it on your blog or your podcast. Or you could write out every single word of it and paint it across the interior of your house. That would really show dedication to this podcast. Just an idea. You don't have to do it, but you can if you want. It's turning into the holiday season. I'm getting frantic text from all my family members about what to get for the other person. Even though I thought years ago we weren't going to do any sort of gifts any longer. This isn't an ad. This is just real life, man. And uh, you know what? Let's just drop gifts all together. Let's just do stuff with people. Who needs gifts? Things you don't even need. You don't even want. And they just end up underneath our fake tree on December 25th whatever uh i love doing this podcast i'm having so much fun i got another beautiful podcast to come out shortly very excited about an interview tomorrow with uh one of my local heroes and uh i don't know anything else let me know give me that feedback anybody you want me to talk to send it my way that's it i'm busy crazy ass day hope yours is going swell and thanks again for listening to the anti-podcast with your host kevin kelly you can find me at kevin kelly usa facebook instagram twitter boom thank you guys